thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of Band Biographies. You can find more episodes at bandbiographies.com. That's B-A-N-N-E-D biographies.com. If you enjoy it, why not leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts? Apparently, it helps get the show up the charts so more people can see it, to download it, and then to leave further five-star reviews. Another way you can help is by telling as many friends as possible to give it a download. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, on Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for BandBiographies, or by emailing BandBiographies at gmail.com. But most of all, enjoy. Susan Jane Ballion was born on the 27th of May 1957 at Guy's Hospital in Southwark, England. Her mother was a half-Scottish, half-English, French-speaking secretary and her father a French-speaking Belgian bacteriologist. The youngest of three, Susan was the first of her siblings, who were both at least ten years older than her, to be born in England after her family moved to Chislehurst, Bromley, from a colony in the Belgian Congo, where her father carried out his research by milking snakes of their venom. The Ballians, and especially young Susan, felt like outsiders in the North Kent, South London suburbs. She would later say that, I think just because of the kind of family we were, there was definitely a sense of not feeling a part of the community, or of being neighbourly. I was very aware of us being very different. My father had a drink problem, which also sensitised that feeling. Where we lived was very residential, and our house seemed different. It wasn't red brick to begin with, it was white stucco with a flat roof and trees. Everyone else had gardens with patios and neatly cut lawns, and we had these massive copper beech trees at the front, and a huge privet hedge. You couldn't look into our house. All the others were almost inviting you to look in, life in all its normality was being paraded, which probably wasn't the case behind closed doors, but that was the perception. The suburbs, she says, inspired intense hatred, I think the lure of London was always there. I remember my sister taking me to Bieber on Kensington High Street to buy a coat and used to gravitate towards going there on my own later. But the suburbs were also a yardstick for measuring how much we didn't fit in. I sort of got introduced into the nightlife in London, you know, my, my escape out of the suburbs. Um, my sister used to be a dancer around sort of club, pub circuit, a go-go dancer. And I was completely uh, besotted by the lifestyle. At the age of nine, she and a friend were sexually assaulted by a stranger. When they told adults what had happened, the police were called, and Susan was taken to see a police doctor who examined her. But her family quickly swept the fuss under the rug. From that moment, she started to acquire a disrespect for adulthood. Years later, she stated, I grew up having no faith in adults as responsible people, and being the youngest in the family I was isolated, I had no one to confide in. So I invented my own world, my own reality. It was my own way of defending myself, protecting myself from the outside world. The only way I could deal with how to survive was to get some strong armour. Susan recalled that her mother went out to work at a time when I didn't know anyone else's mum who wasn't at home. I had a great teacher there, and I've had to remember that. She was the odd job man too, changing fuses, painting, doing the gardening. My dad was there, but not functioning. 
1972, her father died of cirrhosis of the liver when Susan was 14 years old, resulting in an immediate adverse effect on her health. She lost a lot of weight and missed school. And after several misdiagnoses, she was operated on and survived a bout of ulcerative colitis. As much as she admired her mother, growing up with one working parent meant that young Susan endured a very lonely childhood. I was left on my own a lot because my mother had to go out to work, and there was no one else at home. From an early age I didn't like people very much. I used to talk to myself a lot and practice being Betty Davis on the stairs. I'd wear my mother's stilettos and use a white pencil as a cigarette. I remember learning to smoke just like Betty Davis. I must have been a bit loony when I was young, but I was quite happy being left to my own devices. The shit life threw at her would have been enough to create an introverted, angry teenager. The weird miracle is, that armour Susan Ballion created was Susie Sue, an outrageous, feisty, sexually ambiguous, costumed freak who drew the stares of her horrified neighbours. I think it's probably one of the first... Um, looks and uh, attitudes to come along to to empower women and I know it, it, I felt it was like I felt so powerful and strong walking out on the street nothing frightened me today it's a bit of a stretch to imagine how scary it would have been to dress as she did in the mid 70s and how much fear and hostility her ever-changing wardrobe meticulously planned and often hired overnight from costumiers would have engendered at 17 susie left school and had begun frequenting local gay discos where her sister and her friends went she later introduced her own friends to that scene At a Roxy Music show in September 1975, she met Stephen Bailey, another resident of Bromley. I just decided to, uh, to quit work forever. I wasn't really sure what I was going to do, and I had some tickets to go and see um, Roxy Music play at Wembley. I went up with my friend Simon, who basically knew Susie sort of second-hand and introduced me there at that concert. And uh, not that I wouldn't have spotted her in the first place. I mean, she was quite... Um, extraordinary looking even in those days. The pair hit it off straight away, discussing the bands they loved, including Iggy Pop and the Stooges, T-Rex and David Bowie among many others. In November, a new group called the Sex Pistols performed its infamous first gig at St Martin's College in Chislehurst. Susie wasn't there, but one of her friends told her how the singer had threatened the crowd and that they sounded like the Stooges. It was Simon and Seven that told me about, oh, you know, you must come and see this band there, you know. They scare the shit out of the audience, they're great, you know. In February 1976, Susie and Bailey went to see the Pistols play in London. After chatting with the band afterwards, Susie, Bailey and their group of friends began following them regularly. This bunch of motley misfits became known as the Bromley Contingent after the journalist Caroline Kuhn coined the term in an article she wrote for Melody Maker. Susie and her friends delighted in winding up the London she detested. She'd go to wine bars with her friend Berlin on a leash, demanding a bowl of water for him. They were acts of deliberate, gleeful provocation. Grey-haired women who called her a little slut when she answered the door, half-naked in a plastic apron, received a fist in the face. 
Susie became well known in the London club scene for her glam, fetish and bondage attire, which later became part of punk fashion. She would also go on to epitomise gothic style with her signature cat eye makeup, deep red lipstick, spiky dyed black hair and black clothing. In early September 1976, the Bromley contingent followed the Sex Pistols to Paris, where Susie was beaten up for wearing a cupless bra and a black armband with a swastika on it, arriving at the show bloodied up, to John Lydon's delight. She claimed her intent was to shock the bourgeoisie, not to make a political statement. Following the punk ethos of DIY and the idea that the people in the audience could just as easily be the people on the stage, Susie and Bailey decided to form a band. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Band Biographies is proud to present the story of Susie and the Banshees. It was Malcolm McLaren who gave Susie and Severin the opportunity to form a band when he asked casually if she knew of any bands who might want to support the Pistols at the 100 Club at his punk festival on the 16th of September 1976 because a band had pulled out at the last minute. To say no would have been impossible, said Susie. The pair decided to take part despite not knowing any songs or having any other band members. Bailey, after contemplating the stage names Steve Spunker and Stephen Havoc, eventually landed on Stephen Severin as his moniker. He took the name from a character who's mentioned in the Velvet Underground song Venus in Furs. A couple of days later, on the 20th of September, the nameless band appeared with two borrowed musicians, Marco Peroni, who later went on to join Adam and the Ants on guitar, and Simon Ritchie on drums. Ritchie would soon be rechristened Sid Vicious and would become Punk's poster boy when he joined the Sex Pistols playing bass. Yeah, I was just introduced to Susie and Steve. We went to a party that evening and I think Billy Idol was... was they had Billy lined up to play guitar and he didn't want to do it because he basically thought Susie and Steve and Sid were a bunch of idiots. So I thought, well, the, these are the people for me. The next day, the Sunday, we had a rehearsal down at... Um, the Clash's studio where basically we just learned how to turn everything on and that was it and, and Sid bashed around for like 10 minutes and got bored. I think we were going to do Goldfinger and Captain Scarlet before we even started playing, before 1, 2, 3, 4, we realised there was, there was absolutely no point. We, we, we could never learn these songs. You know, it would have taken us six months to learn Goldfinger and, you know, we were playing the next night. So Sid said, well, let's, let's just make a noise. And we all said, fine, let's do that then. We turned up and me and my naivety kind of said, right, I want to be really loud, so I want three microphones, OK? So I, I really don't know if this sound engineer was as naive as I would. He said, all right. <laughs> so that was, you know, kind of a trademark to start off with. I had these three microphones gaffered together because I wanted, not twice as loud, but three, you know, three times as loud as anyone else. I wanted to, you know, because I'd read about people's bowels dropping out with certain frequencies, and I thought, if I can really try and make it painful, we might see some action here. I don't even know to this day if I was actually turned on. It sounded like there was, there was something humming behind me. Sid was just bashing away, and uh, Marco knew the riffs. Marco could play Smoke on the Water, and I think Marco was quite good even then. And um, 
he got some handsome feedback and uh, that's all we needed. It was brilliant. It was, you know, the energy was there and it, it, it was really, it, it was perfect for, the, for that moment in time. It was me do, singing or saying the Lord's Prayer but with like twist and shout, Deutschland über alles, knocking on heaven's door. Susie was barking out these words and uh, lyrics from songs of the past to uh, rearrange the whole meaning. And over all of this was the only musician <laughs> who, who was like this smoke on the water was wafting in and out of this cacophony. It was so bizarre. With hindsight, we can say it's an art performance or something, but we, it was just four people got up, couldn't be bothered to write any songs, couldn't really play anything, and we just made a noise. And then just walked straight back into the crowd and, you know, I think we immediately did an evening standard interview uh, where we said, um, we're splitting up. <laughs> I think we look good, so I mean, you know, that's the thing we were sort of most interested in. For critic John Savage, Susie was unlike any female singer before or since, commanding yet aloof, entirely modern. She opened a new era for women in music, as Viv Albertine from The Slits would later comment, Susie just appeared fully made, fully in control, utterly confident. It totally blew me away. There she was doing something that I dared to dream, but she took it and did it and it wiped the rest of the festival for me. That was it. I can't even remember anything about it except that one performance. The first time I got up on stage, it was kind of, um, I um, called my own bluff. <laughs> and um, it was literally, I was supposed to just be in a band for 15 minutes and that was it. I just wanted to see what it felt like and I got hooked from then on. Of Richie, Susie said she detests the caricature that Vicious would become. It's a shame. I always felt Sid was a better drummer than a bass player. Well, God. He was out of control on drugs. That was so apparent. It was so sad. Because he was more intelligent than that. The shame is nobody realises that what he did, he did to wind people up. People think that he was what he was but the mix of drugs and fame really fucked him up. In December, Susie appeared on TV for the first time with the Sex Pistols on Bill Grundy's show on Thames Television. Punk rockers. The new craze, they tell me. They're heroes, not the nice, clean Rolling Stones. You see, they're as drunk as I am. They're clean by comparison. They're a group called the Sex Pistols. And I'm surrounded now by all of them just let us see the Sex Pistols in action. I am told that that group have received £40,000 from a record company. Doesn't that seem uh, to be slightly opposed to their anti-materialistic view of life? Uh, more the merrier. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, tell me more about We're it. fucking spent, haven't we? I don't know, have you? Yeah, yeah. it's all gone. Really? Down yep. the Really? Good Lord. Now, I want to know one thing. What? Are you serious? Or are you just making it, no, trying to make gone. me laugh? Gone. Really? Yeah. No, but I mean about what you're doing. Oh, yeah. You, you are serious? Mm. Beethoven, Mozart, Bach, and Browns have all died. Spares, they? Really? Oh, what what, what, what are we saying, sir? Wonderful people. Are they? Oh, yes, they really turn us on. But they do. Well, suppose they turn other people on. It's what? Nothing. A rude word. Next question. No, no. What was the rude word? Shit. Was it really? Good heavens, you frightened me to death. Oh, all right. So what about you girls behind? I've got your dad, isn't he, this geezer? Are you, uh, 
with your granddad. Are you worried or are you just enjoying yourself? Enjoying myself. Are you? Yeah. yeah. Ah, so that's what you were doing. Yeah. I always wanted to meet you. Did you really? Yeah. We'll meet afterwards, shall we? <laughs> you dirty yeah. son. Yeah. You dirty old man. <laughs> well, keep going, Chief. Keep going. <laughs> Go on, you've got another five you seconds. Say something outrageous. You dirty please. bastard. Go on, again. <laughs> you dirty fucker. What a clever boy. What a yeah. fucking rocker. Well, that's it for tonight. The other rocker, Abel, and I'm saying nothing else about him, will be back tomorrow. I'll be seeing you soon. I hope I'm not seeing you again. From me, though, good night. This episode created a media furore on the front covers of several tabloids, including the Daily Mirror, which published the headline, Susie's a Punk Shocker. This event had a major impact on the Sex Pistols' subsequent career and they became a household name overnight. Not liking the clichés used by the press, Susie distanced herself from that scene and stopped seeing Sex Pistols shows, deciding to focus all her energy on her own band. To this end, Sue and Severin recruited drummer Kenny Morris. The first thing I remember was that Susie was delivering almost like a staccato almost like a beat in itself. And I just played right up against that with the rhythm. Even then, he was quite sort of um, very earnest and uh, quite, you know, very sort of pretentiously arty, but that, that was fine in those days. And um, he had a lot of good ideas and a lot of energy. And, um, you know, he, he looked the part. And uh, it's basically the three of us just hunting around for a guitarist for a while. That's one thing I, I never want to do again, is look for guitarists. The trio eventually found a guitarist in the form of Pete Fenton. But after playing several gigs in early 1977, they realised that Fenton did not fit in because he was a real rock guitarist. I mean, these people just turn up and plug in and go... And then they realise you pulled the plug out and they say, oh, OK, you know, and it's almost like... They're just going on to the next audition, you know, it's, and it, it was so demoralising and it's like, oh, we're never going to find somebody we can, uh, we can fit into what we want to do. John McKay finally took his place in July. They were kind of the people I've been looking for since I was a teenager and into David Bowie and Roxy Music, Lou Reed. Um, they had the right sort of attitude. I remember he had those and I hated them. <laughs> Had those horrible plastic sandals, you know, that looked like sort of skeleton feet. But I thought from the shoulders upwards he looked really good. Once that was the four-piece, everything then escalated really fast. The Banshees' first live appearance on television took place in November on Tony Wilson's TV show So It Goes at Granada Television in Manchester. They then recorded their first John Peel session for BBC Radio in which they premiered a new song, Metal Postcard, introducing a 4-4 beat drum pattern described as motoric austerity. The band described their music as cold, machine-like and passionate at the same time. Appearing on the front cover of UK Weekly Sounds magazine, Vivian Goldman wrote they sound like a 21st century industrial plant. While the band sold out venues in London in early 1978, they still had problems getting the right recording contract that could give them complete artistic control. Famously, no one wanted to sign them. We want a recording contract, but not in the way that we're going to compromise anything that we do. Which is very hard. Have you had lots of offers? 
No. <laughs> and that is why, probably. We were headlining, we were playing to a thousand people, and, and um, there were bands who were being signed for like 12 albums, deals and stuff, and they were playing to like 100 people if they could. Susie believes that the male-dominated music industry didn't know what to do with a scary female singer. There weren't really any girl bands around, so, you know, there, there was us that started, there, and then you got uh, polystyrene, you got the slits, um, you got gay advert playing bass, um, and I, ironically, I think all those people had a hard time getting getting a deal or getting signed. I, I, I think I know we did, and I know the Slits did, um, because um, the industry found it totally unacceptable that women could run around looking and sounding like that and with that attitude. However, a fan undertook a graffiti campaign in London. One morning, every record company was either spray painted or had, you know, or chiselled with the, with the slogan, sign the banshees, do it now. Um, I don't know if Niels had anything to do with it. He swore he didn't, but um, it was a, a fantastic idea and it uh, certainly kept the, the temperature up. Polydor finally offered them a guarantee of creative control and signed them in June 1978. They were booked in to record their first single, Hong Kong Garden, at Olympic Studio in London, with the help of American producer Bruce Albertine, who was more used to recording soul music. The result was not convincing. The band hated it. Their manager, Nils Stevenson, who was in a relationship with Susie, decided to call in another sound engineer, Steve Lillywhite, who had a musical approach closer to theirs. Lillywhite was in London at that time recording with Johnny Thunders. The Banshees and Lily White chose to work in a more intimate, smaller studio, the Fallout Shelter, located in the basement of Island Records. Lily White was hired to record Hong Kong Garden because of his ability to get a certain sound on drums. He told drummer Kenny Morris not to record all the drums at the same time. Morris played the bass drum and the snare first, then the cymbals, and then the tom-toms. Lily White then added echo onto the drums, adding significant space to the recording. Lily White re-recorded the song in just two days, and Hong Kong Garden would be his first hit record as a producer. Later, he would go on to produce hits for the likes of XTC, Big Country, Simple Minds, The Psychedelic Furs, Toya Wilcox, Talking Heads, Kirsty McCole, U2, The Rolling Stones, The Pogues, Peter Gabriel, Morrissey, The Killers, Dave Matthews Band, Counting Crows and Joan Armour Trading, among many others. Despite, but probably because of, its eccentric mock Chinese xylophone motif, the song reached number 7 in the UK singles chart shortly after its release on the 18th of August. An enemy review hailed it as a bright, vivid narrative, something like snapshots from the window of a speeding Japanese train, power charged by the most original, intoxicating guitar playing I've heard in a long, long time. However, the truth of the song's message was a little closer to home. Hong Kong Garden was the name of Sue's local Chinese takeaway in Chislehurst High Street. She explained the lyrics in a 2009 interview with the independence Robert Webb, with reference to the racist activities of skinheads visiting the takeaway. I'll never forget, there was a Chinese restaurant in Chislehurst called the Hong Kong Garden. Me and my friend were really upset that we used to go there and like, occasionally when the skinheads would turn up, 
it would really turn really ugly. These gits would just go in en masse and just terrorise these Chinese people who were working there. We'd try and say, leave them alone, you know, it was a kind of trouble. I remember wishing that I could be like Emma Peel from the Avengers and kick all the skinheads' heads in, because they used to mercilessly torment these people for being foreigners. It made me feel so helpless, hopeless and ill. The record was featured as single of the week in NME, Melody Maker, Sounds and Record Mirror. Melody Maker stated, The elements come together with remarkable effect. The song is strident and powerful, with tantalising oriental guitar riffs. Sounds hailed the song as constructed in the time-honoured tradition of all good singles. Catchy, original arrangement coupled with an irresistible sing-along chorus. The record Mirror described the song as accessibility incarnated. I'm playing it every third record. I love every second. The song also charted at number 10 in Ireland and 38 in Australia. Hot on the heels of the success of Hong Kong Garden, the Banshees and Lily White went back into the studio to produce the band's debut album, The Scream. It was recorded in one week during August and mixed in three weeks with Lily White co-producing. Susie and Severin used JG Ballard and William Burroughs for the reference points for the album's lyrics. The song Suburban Relapse is about suburbia. Severin said in a Mojo interview in 2014, that's why JG Ballard resonated so much with us, because all his near-future tales were set in this bizarre suburban wasteland. Suburbia is a place where you can imagine any kind of possibility, because there's space, not urban clutter. McKay wrote most of the songs. Only Carcass dated from the band's time with Peter Fenton, their guitarist from January to July 1977. Susie wanted the Banshee's music to be cinematic. Bernard Herrmann's score to Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho inspired the music of Suburban Relapse, where the guitars echo the knife-screeching violins of the famous shower scene. The title of the album was partly inspired by the film The Swimmer, starring Burt Lancaster in which the main character, Neddy Merrill, swims home from a pool party using open-air pools in people's back gardens. Climbing over garden fences from pool to pool, his journey put him into a state of mental and physical exhaustion, and in the end, all Neddy Merrill could think of to do was scream, as a scream of exhausted jubilance after a troubled, arduous journey. The idea for the cover was Susie's. Photographer Paul Wakefield met with her and the band to discuss the project. Wakefield later said, The idea was to shoot disquieting and unnerving images underwater in a swimming pool. You can't scream underwater. I wanted to be able to completely control the lighting, and so an indoor pool was the only option. I scouted quite a few pools, but then I saw this one in the YMCA in central London, which was dark blue tiled with light blue lane stripes instead of the normal reverse colours. I knew it was the ideal location. I wanted to give it an eerie underwater nighttime feel, and this setting was perfect. We used a number of 1000 and 2000 kilowatt lights around the pool edge. I used school kids as models, and they pretty well ran riot. More than one month prior to its release, John Peel broadcast the album on BBC Radio 1 from an advanced copy on cassette from the beginning to end with no interruptions. 
The screen was released on the 13th of November 1978, peaking at number 12 on the UK album charts and receiving almost universal critical acclaim. Critics in the British and American press generally agreed that the album was a landmark of its time and that the band's willingness to experiment made it a challenging listen. Sounds said The Scream was the best debut album of the year, giving it 5 stars out of 5 and listing it at number 2 in its year-end best album list. The Record Mirror also published a 5-star review, saying, The Scream points to the future, real music for the new age. It is vital, it's moving, it's a landmark. Melody Maker described the album's sound as strong, abrasive, visceral and constantly inventive, with a thrust that makes the spaces equal partners to the notes. Zigzag qualified it as a magnificent record, with its reviewer Chris Needs writing, I can't think of another group who could have made an LP so uncompromisingly, powerful and disturbing, yet so captivating and enjoyable. It's certainly a special classic to join milestones like Diamond Dogs, Roxy's First and Lou Reed's Berlin. This is music of such strength and vision that you just can't not be moved by the time they swing into the final climactic passage of Switch, the closing track. Needs qualified the sound as huge, sometimes awe-inspiring, and commenting that drummer Morris created one of the best drum sounds I've ever heard. The deep echo and floor-shuddering mix accentuating his muted glitter band Stomp. Critic Adam Sweeting began his review by saying, this is a chilling, intense masterpiece. He then noted that the musicians have perfected a group sound which is powerful but streamlined, and the words and music combine to produce coolly dazzling images. Several journalists from the NME also praised the record. Nick Kent said, Certainly the traditional three-piece sound has never been used in a more unorthodox fashion with such stunning results. In December 1978, another critic from the enemy, Paul Morley, described the music on the screen as unlike anything in rock. It is not, as some would say, chaotic. It is controlled. Each instrument operates within its own space, its own time, as if mocking the lines of other instruments. Known rock is inverted, leaving just traces of mimicry of rock's clichés, satire that often bursts with glorious justification into shaking celebration, as on Helter Skelter. It's easy to gain attention by doing something which is crudely, obviously out of the ordinary, but the Banshees have avoided such futile superficialities. It is innovation, not revolution, not a destruction, but new building. It has grown out of rock, velvets, station to station, bowling. And Susie's staggering voice is dropped, clipped, snapped prominently above this audacious musical drama, emphasising the dark colours and empty naked moods. However, in her review of the album, Enemy's Julie Burchill expressed reservations, stating that the Banshee's sound was a self-important threshing machine, thrashing all stringed instruments down onto the same low level, alongside that draggy sub-voice, as it attempts futile eagle and dove swoops around the mono beat. Their sound is certainly different from the normal guitar, bass, drums, voice consequence, but it's radically stodgy, loud, heavy and levelling. Kurt Loder gave a very favourable review in Rolling Stone, marking that The Scream was a striking debut album, 
and that its sound, stark though fully realised, thanks partly to a most simpatico co-producer Steve Lillywhite, is lent added intellectual dimension by a series of disturbingly ambiguous lyrical images. The Scream placed the group among the pioneers of post-punk, as peer Robert Smith of The Cure contended. When The Scream came out, I remember it was much slower than everybody thought. It was like the forerunner of the Joy Division sound. It was just big sounding. Speaking of Joy Division, Peter Hooker said that Susie and the Banshees were one of our big influences. The Banshees' first LP was one of my favourite ever records. The way the guitarist and drummer played was just a really unusual way of playing. And this album showcases a landmark performance. The Scream had a strong impact on other musicians as well. Massive Attack covered and sampled Metal Postcard, Mittergeisen, on their song Super Predators, Metal Postcard, in 1997 for the soundtrack to the movie The Jackal. US producer Steve Albini praised guitarist John McKay for the noise created. The Scream is notable for a few things, only now people are trying to copy it, and even now nobody understands how that guitar player, you know, the one who's been replaced by everyone in England, got all that pointless noise to stick together as songs. Good noise guitar is like an orgasm. Morrissey's main composer, Boz Bora, also rates The Scream highly, ranking it second in his top five Desert Album selection, saying, Another big influence on my playing is John McKay. That first Susie record was quite incredible sounding, and it started me thinking that music didn't have to be any certain way, that there could be many different influences in music, and it didn't have to be a single, strict avenue. That first Banshees album has a lot of jarring guitar that rubs against what you'd think was going to, or maybe should happen, over a part, and that changed my thinking quite a bit. Faith No More covered Switch in concert and cited this album as one of their influences. Garbage singer Shirley Manson cited it as one of her all-time favourite records. The Scream was also hailed by the singer of Suede, Brett Anderson. Mark Almond of Soft Cell also explained why the songs mattered to him. The Scream made a real impression on me. I loved the way they turned these suburban things into nightmares. That was a great influence on my early Soft Cell stuff. The Staircase Mystery was released as the band's second single on the 23rd of March 1979 and became the group's second top 40 entry, peaking at number 24. When the band's debut album The Scream was remastered and reissued in 2005 with bonus material, both Hong Kong Garden and The Staircase Mystery were included. Melody Maker hailed the single by writing, The Banshees have been able to come up with a couple of slices of excellent music for their singles. The Staircase hasn't anywhere near the commercial potential or immediacy of Hong Kong Garden, but nevertheless it's a great song. A sinister, almost mesmerising tune dominated by Susie's unorthodox vocals. It grows and matures with each play. The band then recorded a John Peel session at Radio 1 in early April, in which they had premiered the tracks Placebo Effect, Playground Twist, Regal Zone and Poppy Day from the as-yet unrecorded second album. 
After this, the Banshees went straight back into Air Recording Studios to record their second album between May and June 1979 with producers Nils Stevenson and Mike Stavro, the latter of whom had been a recording engineer on T-Rex's final album Dandy in the Underworld in 1977. The album's only single, Playground Twist, was released on the 24th of July, shortly after recording was finished on the album. The Enemy's Roy Carr wrote about the single if Ingmar Bergman produced records, they might sound like this. The listener is immediately engulfed in a maelstrom of whirling sound, punctuated by the ominous tolling of church bells, phased guitars, thundering percussion, a surreal alto sax, and the wail of Susie's voice. It demands to be played repeatedly at the threshold of pain volume to elicit its full nightmarish quality. The single isn't particularly catchy, but it nevertheless peaked at number 28 two weeks after its release and saw the band perform live on top of the pops. Severin later recalled the head of A&R at Polydor telling him he expected a commercial failure. The band's second album, Join Hands, is a much darker, more claustrophobic and haunting one than The Scream, with the topic of the First World War as its inspiration. The band had been watching news reports from the revolution in Iran, including scenes of repression and curfews. It was one of the first times they had seen images of people being shot and killed on television. In England, the political situation was also unstable, with rubbish piling up on the streets of London. Susie said it was a time when everything was in flux and uncertain, but also festering underneath. And because this stuff from the past that was just left there rotting, and it needed to be acknowledged and then cleaned up, not just swept away, still rotting. The theme of war emerged through the songs, and rather than a pro-military message, the lyrics were meant to capture the spirit of what things were like at this time. The album's references to poppies represented the idea of loss, of flesh and blood and hopelessness. The themes of the songs also included childlike terror, attacks on social and spiritual conditioning, various kinds of death and torture and loneliness. Some songs were also about families and nursing. The album opens with the sound of tolling bells before the beginning of Poppy Day. The words are based on John McRae's poem In Flanders Fields, which was written in 1915 after the loss of a friend during a battle. Poppy Day, a short track with a long introduction building over what one journalist called shards of John McKay's guitar and a strident militaristic backbeat, had been written after Severin watched the televised two-minute silence in memory of the war dead on Sunday the 12th of November 1978. We wanted to write a song that would fittingly fill that gap, he said. On the inner sleeve of the album, the mentioned two minutes of silence was added next to the lyrics of the song. Regal Zone, featuring saxophone by McKay, also covers the subject of war and is about the conflict in Iran. Placebo Effect addresses the use of placebos in medicine, while Icon displays echoes of iconoclasm, with the destruction of paintings featuring religious images or statues and symbols of old authoritarian regimes. Premature Burial, ostensibly inspired by Edgar Allan Poe's short story of the same name, is the track from which the album title had been taken. 
It is, in Susie's words, an expression of claustrophobia, of being hemmed in both by society's and people's limitations. For the writer Mark Patris, the line, We're all sisters and brothers, looked like a mockery of the summer of love. The song's conclusion features what sounds like a formal choir backing for a retreating Red Army in its magnificent defeat. Beginning the second side, Playground Twist is a swirling mass of flange guitars with church bells, and it includes a nursery rhyme section. The song talks about adults who act like children and children who think they're adults. Susie explained, It's about the cruelty of children and that whole aspect of being thrown out into the playground in the winter in howling gales and left to fend for yourself. It's not the sort of thing you're supposed to write pop songs about. The lullaby, Mother, Oh Mein Papa, is an interpretation of the German song, Oh Mein Papa, with words by Susie. Phil Sutcliffe called it a raw wound of a song offered by Susie from her own life and surely shared and picked and scratched away at by everyone who hears it. Over a music box, two voices sing simultaneous love and hatred for the same mother. The positive lyric is up front and the negative one is in the background. The final track of the album is a studio recording of The Lord's Prayer, the song that Susie and the Banshees had famously played at their debut performance at the 100 Club Punk Festival in September 1976. It was recorded in one take. After every session in the first week of recording, they put down a version of The Lord's Prayer. The recording took place under a strained atmosphere. McKay and Kenny Morris withdrew and became uncommunicative with the rest of the band and their manager and co-producer of the album, Neil Stevenson. That was the beginning of the rift between me and Susie and uh, John and Kenny because John and Kenny just couldn't bear him. He d didn't like her music for a start. He was so laid back, everything took for ages to get done. And um, he just didn't give a shit. Stavro was not a joy to work with and uh, Neil's interfered in the, the production and started to try and get me to do things that I did not do naturally because he liked other guitarists doing it. He knew who buttered his bread so he was listening to me and Susie and Nils and not really paying too much attention to John and Kenny. We couldn't write new songs fast enough because we weren't getting on well enough. It wasn't out and out fighting but it wasn't a very creative atmosphere either. I had three or four songs that could have gone on joined hands, but we just couldn't get them together. It just wasn't the, the same sort of core feeling that we'd had. It had been split by Neil's completely down the middle. And I think that vibe just got in the way. Unlike the sessions for The Scream, the music was recorded without Susie, who added her vocals later. Morris did not take part in the mixing sessions, while Susie was heavily involved. Commenting a few days before the album's release, John Savage wrote about the music, The songs are delivered with the stifling intensity of inner violence in a locked room. Chris Needs remarked that Join Hands was, in retrospect, an iconic title for a record which split the group in two. The album reflected just how the band felt at the time. We were lonely and isolated, and that came across in the music, stated Susie in 2003. Musically, Join Hands was an uncompromising album, but it still sounds modern today. The group wanted the album cover to be released using an edited image from a Holy Communion card showing children joining hands. 
The image had been photocopied several times, so it had become distorted. The art direction was by John Maybury, a college friend of Morris. Their manager, Stevenson, was unable to determine who owned the copyright and advised that the band would be bankrupted if they were sued as a result. Polydor also became nervous about copyright infringement, as well as disliking its religious nature, so the artwork was pulled at the last minute. A UK tour had already been scheduled to coincide with the release of the album, so there was no possibility of delaying the release to clear the copyright. Stevenson suggested an alternative cover. He instructed the Polydor Art Department to design artwork where the four statues from the Guards Memorial were cut out and put side by side from a photo session the band had done in front of the monument, which commemorates the war dead of the First World War. Susie found the sleeve a workable solution. An embossed sleeve was planned with the four soldiers inked on the card, but was not used because the band did not receive the proofs in time. Morris and McKay blamed Stevenson, Sue and Severin, although it was actually Polydor that refused the extra expense at the last minute. Nevertheless, Severin succeeded in pushing for a gatefold cover. We wanted it all white because you were supposed to do it all black, and you were supposed to have blackmail lettering on it, so we had it nice and classic. Join Hands was issued on the 7th of September 1979 and reached number 13 in the UK Albums chart, and the band went on tour to promote it. The resentment between McKay and Morris and the rest of the group had increased. A warm-up show in Ireland had caused problems for McKay. None of the ancillary equipment arrived at the venue, forcing him to play without all his effects pedals. Finally, after a brawl at a record shop, McKay and Morris left the band on the day of the album's release, just a few hours before a concert at the Capitol Theatre in Aberdeen. We walked into the record shop and they were playing joined hands. John immediately took it off and put the Slits album on, which had come out the same week, um, because he couldn't bear to hear it again. So Susie got, you know, her hackles were rising already. We started signing a few things, and then Polydor basically made the mistake of not actually giving, supplying the shop with enough records. So Niels had a box of promo albums in, in the back of the van. And they were stamped with gold, not for resale. So I presumed that we were just going to hand a few out on the way around the tour, not all in the record shop, but just on the way around the tour, hand a couple of hours of promotional copies, um, which may have been naive, but that's what I thought. And as soon as John Mackay saw that it was being sold, he went ballistic without finding out, and he started giving them away. And I think that's when Susie clocked him. <laughs> I stood there for a second and then looked at Kenny, Kenny looked at me and we just walked straight out. Uh, we actually walked down the road to a coffee shop and sat down there and tried to calm down. But um, it was just the last insult really. Um, it was a misunderstanding as it turns out, uh, but it was just the last straw. We went straight to Soundcheck fully expecting to see them there and um, you know, they, they didn't show and they didn't show again. I packed, Kenny packed, we ordered a cab, we got in the cab uh, and it wasn't until we were sitting in the cab that Niels turned up saying, I've invested £45,000 in this tour. It could have been pointed out even, even then it was a crazy thing to do. Anyway, he had me, his hand on my, on my neck. But by the time Niels was, was hanging through the taxi window saying you'll never work again, uh, that was the last of our worries really. 
There was nothing more to do but wind up the window on his arm. I was only too pleased to see him in some agony. He fucking flushed everything down the toilet, basically. And I, I just thought it's such a shitty thing to do to anyone, let alone somebody you'd practically live with for two years. And I remember, don't mind admitting, turning to John Mackay and saying, but we're not going to the station. Why? Because that's the first place Susie's going to look. And I know Susie. Um, she'll go through every carriage on the rampage and she'll search under every seat. Of course she did. If I'd have been able to get my hold on, hands on either of them, I, I feel sure I would have become close to throttling the life out of them. And we went to Glasgow Airport and paid the taxi. They actually let the steps down of the little plane because it was going and let us get over the thing and everything, jump on this little plane. And it, wouldn't go as, it wasn't going as far as um, London, so got a lift on a coach. We were the only two people on the coach and the driver was crazy. He drove at must have been 120 miles an hour in the night, in the rain, and it was just like something in a dream. Went and stayed at John's uncle's um, house for one night and then we um, went off to a friend's cottage in Somerset, in the middle of nowhere. And lucky we did, because we opened the papers the following day and Banshee split and Susie quoted us sort of saying, if you have one ounce of the hatred or something that we have for, for those arty ones, and you, you can kill them in my name. It left us completely bereft of uh, record company, group, management, everything. Uh, they kind of convinced themselves for a little while that um, we planned it, but it just doesn't make sense. As soon as we got off the road, I was just in bed for about a month. Anyway, I did a lot of writing, and one of the songs was called Drop Dead, which was to a certain duo. I thought it'd be great if there was a singing telegram with, you know, some dead roses that turned up at, at somebody's doorstep. He completely loathed, so I, I invented a kind of a singing telegram to wish somebody ill. Drop dead, you stinking little creep, drop Kind of enjoyed doing that. In need of replacements to fulfil the remaining tour dates, the Banshee's manager called Budgie, who had formerly drummed in the Spitfire Boys, Big in Japan and the Slits to audition. So I was there with my like roll-ups and pint and bitter and they had like vodka and tonic and Rothmans. And I thought, this is the cultural difference, this is the divide between the band on tour and the, uh, the drummer out of a job, you know. And the next thing we were in rehearsals, auditioning guitarists, like what seemed like a, you know, an age. At the end of the rehearsals, I kind of think, well, the budget was really good. It kind of didn't really, didn't really piss me off at all. <laughs> you know, I, kind of, I noticed him in that he didn't do anything that, well, well that, you know, that, that was like, sort of, you know, sort of busy, because I hate, hate busy drummers. He was hired but Susie and Severin had less success auditioning guitarists. They claimed to have seen too many rock virtuosos. The Cure's Robert Smith stepped in as they were the support band on the tour, which resumed in September. Immediately there was a kind of, you know, a lighter atmosphere in, in the whole proceedings because they were, they were just different characters and, uh, um, and um, we knew this wasn't going to last. You know, we, we thought, you know, we're just going to do this tour and then we'll sit down and recamp and have a think about what to do next. And I think it was within about two weeks of rehearsals we went back on the road and picked up 
the join hands tour. The audience actually knew the songs better than I did. I remember in the first gig at Leicester, De Montford Hall, where there was supposed to be a, a stop in the song, I think it was Switch. Switch being the, the classic one, and every time Susie stopped singing, I remember I would think, oh, shit, stop. And the audience were kind of like miming the drums for me, you know, and um, as they sang all the lyrics as well. So I had to quickly make sure <laughs> I got it right. After the last concert with the Banshees, Smith returned to The Cure full-time. Upon release, the album was well-received by reviewers. Sounds gave Join Hands 4.5 out of 5, with the reviewer Pete Silverton noting a change in the sound. The mix is different to the last album. Now there's a clarity which frames Sue's voice like it was a thing of treasure. He added that some of the songs have Susie's voice double-tracked with devastating effect. John Savage, a Melody Maker reviewer, described the first track, Poppy Day, as a short, powerful evocation of the Great War graveyards in Flanders. He also wrote that Placebo Effect has a stunning flanged guitar intro, chasing clinical lyrics covering some insertion or operation. About Icon, he wrote, The brilliantly reverbed guitar is a perfect foil for Susie's soaring and, for once, emotional vocal. Savage noted that the five songs of the first side rise and fall into each other in a stunning segue. Similarly, Paul Morley wrote in NME that Side One's five songs are all addictive Banshees mini-dramas. Ronnie Gurr, a Record Mirror reviewer, also hailed the record, saying Poppy Day establishes the band's perfect employ of atmospherics and sets the tone for all the tracks. Mother was compared to the soundtrack of an Alfred Hitchcock film, with Gurr noting that the track features a musical box, echoes, menacing guitar grumblings, and Susie providing vocals that would benefit any of Hitchcock's best matricides. He concluded that with Severin's truly disturbing scratchings, Join Hands was a dangerous work that should be heard. Strangely, a song from The Scream was released next, Mittageisen, which was originally called Metal Postcard with Mittageisen in parentheses. It's a combination of the German words Mittagessen, which means lunch, and Eisen, which means iron. The title is based on the anti-Nazi Dadaist artist John Hartfield's photo collage Hurrah, die Butter ist alle, or Hooray, the butter is finished, which was also used as the single's cover art. The image depicts a family sat round a kitchen table eating various bits of metal. Hartfield was inspired to create the image by a quote from Hermann Goering, who said, Iron always made a nation strong, butter and lard only made the people fat. Lunch, iron, iron for lunch, get it? Anyway, the single itself was re-recorded in 1975, this time with the lyrics sung in German after being translated by the band's manager Dave Woods and a woman named Renata, and released as a single in West Germany with Love in a Void on the B-side. Love in a Void, which was also re-recorded for this release, had originally been composed by Severin and previous Banshees guitarist Pete Fenton. The track was an early live favourite, it was also the first song of their first John Peel session recorded in late November 77. Mittag Eisen peaked at number 47 on the UK singles charts, 
However, Love in a Void was included on the band's 1981 singles compilation Once Upon a Time, the singles, which compiled all their A-sides up to that time, and again later on the 2006 remastered version of Join Hands. Mittag Eisen eventually appeared on the band's 2004 B-side compilation Downside Up. Love in a Void was heavily sampled by rapper Akala in a version retitled Love in My Eyes on the album Freedom Lasso in 2007. Remember when I met you, heart went racing, but I went chase, I was in the strings placing, faking, what on my face was blatant, you keep me mind, but I'm scared of the taking, pacing, I was not used to the waiting, patient, contemplating, and I ain't talking about consummating, just conversation on the long debating. It was also covered by metal band Dark Throne on its EP Too Old, Too Cold in 2006. After the tour for Join Hands in 1979, Susie was ordered by doctors to take one month of rest. She used this time to learn to play guitar and compose music for the first time. She and Severin started working on some demos, which would demonstrate a new direction for the band, recorded as they were, with just a bass guitar and synthesizer. In this period, Budgie became a permanent member of the Banshees, and the band entered the studios in early 1980 to record the next single, Happy House, with guitarist John McGeoch, formerly of Magazine and Visage. I saw uh, McGeoch play with Magazine on TV, and I thought that was it, we had to steal him. And it was... Uh first of many thefts. Niels Stevenson, who was the manager at the time, reckoned he coated me with limousines and champagne and stuff like that. Well, he did, but that wasn't why I joined the Banshees. I, I wanted to be a Banshee. I couldn't resist. And it was like a new lease of life. What was so great was it wasn't continuing where we left off, it was just starting again. We had that fantastic run of singles that's testament to his um, influence on us and, and us bringing the best out in him. And uh, I mean, that's, that's one of my favourite times. With the arrival of the new musicians, so a new musical style began for the band. Budgie was interested in African polyrhythms and used a reggae vibe on the song, while McGeoch played atmospheric and edgy guitars. Susie stated that the band almost invented a new sound with this single, saying in a 1999 interview that it was the Banshee's Phase 2. It was almost a different band. On Happy House, McGeoch started playing guitar in a different style. He later commented, I was going through a picky phase as opposed to strumming. Happy House was lighter and had more musicality in it. They invited me to join. I was sad leaving Magazine, but the Banshees were so interesting it felt like a good move. In a 1982 interview, when asked if Happy House was a cynical song, Susie replied, It's sarcastic. In a way, like television, all the media, it's like adverts. The perfect family. Whereas it's more common that husbands beat their wives. There are mental families, really. But the projection is everyone smiling, blonde hair, sunshine, eating butter without getting fat, and everyone perfect. Happy House was released on the 7th of March 1980 and became the band's second top 20 hit, peaking at number 17 in the UK singles chart. The video is set in a studio cartoon house made to look fun and happy, reflecting the sarcastic lyrics. Susie explores the house dressed in a harlequin outfit while the band plays in the living room. 
Despite the very distinctive guitar riff that is arguably the centrepiece of the song, McGeoch does not feature in the video. Instead, Susie occasionally mimics playing the riff with a ukulele, with Severin on bass and Budgie on drums playing along in the background. The song has been covered by several acts, the most infamous of which was the Italian dance act Capella, which had a hit in 1993 with the Euro dance song You Got To Know, which used a synthesised version of McGeoch's guitar riff. Capella was later sued for failure to pay publishing royalties. In 2000, the electronic rock band Mindless Self-Indulgence sampled the opening riff on their single Bitches from the album Frankenstein Girls Will Seem Strangely Sexy. In 2011, The Weeknd sampled several elements of the original version in his song House of Balloons from the mixtape of the same name. It has also influenced several critically acclaimed musicians. In a 2008 interview on BBC Radio 2, Johnny Marr from The Smiths discussed McGeoch's contribution by saying... What it is about Happy House, from a guitar playing point of view, is for a start it's modern. It's not got any of the sort of creaky old rock and roll aspects to it, and it still sounds like the Banshees, almost more so. That's when I really began to become a fan of John McGeoch. It was an extra bonus for me that they got a great guitar player who had left another band and come in as a ringer. It was like getting George Best on the guitar. The second single from the Banshee's third album was called Christine and was released on the 30th of May. It starts with a distinctive riff played on an acoustic guitar by McGeoch. The post-chorus instrumentation includes electronic organ. The close of the song utilises a strong flanging effect. The song peaked at number 22 in the UK singles chart and has since been covered by the Red Hot Chili Peppers at their V2001 appearance, as well as by New Order on the deluxe edition of their Graffiti Soul album in 2009. The band's work on the singles Happy House and Christine was hailed shortly after their release by The Jam, whose singer-songwriter Paul Weller said that both songs used some unusual sounds, while drummer Rick Buckler qualified them as innovative. Bobby Gillespie of Primal Scream said in Vogue in 2016 that he was inspired by both Happy House and Christine because they were pop songs with dark subject matter. He stated that's the idea, yeah, to use the conventional way of constructing a pop song to communicate what I feel about the world and my opinion on relationships. It's a twist that makes it darker than it seems. When we were growing up, Susie and the Banshees were doing this kind of stuff. They were getting in the charts with songs about mental hospitals. Happy House, that was nearly number fucking ten in the charts. Christine, the Strawberry Girl, Christine, Banana Split Lady. They were writing about a girl with schizophrenia. They were getting in pop magazines and on TV. They were getting played on daytime radio. It's fucking subversive. They were outsiders bringing outsider subjects into the mainstream. 
As well as synthesizers, the band also started using sitars and drum machines in their songwriting process for the new album, called Kaleidoscope, which was produced by Nigel Gray, who had made a name for himself by producing the first three albums by The Police. The Banshees particularly experimented in electronic music on a couple of tracks, such as Red Light and Lunar Camel. The album also contained what could be described as a ballad in Desert Kisses. The group initially had a concept of making each song sound completely different, without regard to whether or not the material could be performed in concert. Sex Pistols guitarist Steve Jones, at the time bandless after the split of the Pistols, played lead guitar on the tracks Clockface, Paradise Place and Skin. Kaleidoscope was released on the 1st of August 1980, peaking at number 5 in the UK Albums Chart, the highest position the band ever achieved. Melody Maker described the result as a kaleidoscope of sound and imagery, new forms and content flashing before our eyes. Singling out the tracks Paradise Place and Skin, Paolo Hewitt called them classic banshee pieces, hypnotic, relentless and incisive. Writing for Zigzag, Chris Needs hailed it as probably the most varied, diverse and adventurous offering yet to shimmer under the Banshee's banner. Praising the band's new musical direction, if anything, it makes its two predecessors seem a trifle one-dimensional now. Tracks veer from the lightest electronic backdrop pulse to surging sound walls as mesmeric and powerful as anything they've done. But the subtlety evident in Happy House and Marvelous Christine are pointers to the main content of Kaleidoscope. He noted that Susie's voice gained new strength and depth, but she's also widened beyond singing and writing to include synth, piano and a spot of guitar. Kaleidoscope later influenced several critically acclaimed musicians. In 1985, The Cure frontman Robert Smith cited the album when describing The Head on the Door. It reminds me of the Kaleidoscope album, the idea of having lots of different sounding things, different colours. During a TV interview to promote The Head on the Door, Smith also included Kaleidoscope in a selection of his top five all-time favourite albums. US singer-songwriter and producer Santa Gold took inspiration from the song Red Light, explaining that her song, My Superman, is an interpolation of a Susie Sue song, Red Light. I loved her song. Santa Gold also later sampled another song from Kaleidoscope, Luna Camel, on her Top Ranking remix album. Another US singer-songwriter, Jeremy Jay, covered the same song on his Airwalker EP. Kaleidoscope was also praised by Suede singer Brett Anderson, as well as Erasure's Andy Bell, who cited it as one of his favourites, saying, This more commercial offering from Susie was much more up my street, and consequently, as with all my favourite teen angst albums, I learnt a lot of the songs inside out and backwards. This lineup, including McGeoch, toured the United States for the first time in support of the album, playing their first shows in New York City in November 1980. On the 28th of November, while on tour in Europe, the band wrote and recorded what it saw as a Christmas song, which was also produced by Nigel Gray. Israel was released as a standalone single on the 28th of November, and it peaked at number 41 on the UK singles chart and number 73 on the US National Disco Action Top 100. It was the band's first single to also be released on a 12-inch, despite the track lengths on both sides of the 12-inch edition being the same as on the 7-inch. 
Though it charted, Israel did not appear on a Susie and the Banshees album until the release of the Once Upon a Time The Singles Collection compilation the following year. In 1981, after the tour for Kaleidoscope, the Banshees returned to the studio as well as returning to a guitar-based sound for its fourth album, Juju, due to the now official Banshee, McGeoch. The album also brought Budgie's intricate percussion work to the fore. According to Severin, Juju was the first time we'd made a concept album that drew on darker elements. It wasn't pre-planned, but as we were writing, we saw a definite thread running through the songs, almost a narrative to the album as a whole. The album was recorded at Grey's Surrey Sound Studio in Leatherhead. There, McGeoch experimented with a guitar effects device called the Gizmo for the track Into the Light. Attached to the guitar's bridge, the Gizmo, which had been invented in 1969 and patented by Kevin Godley and Lowell Cream in 1975, used small, motor-driven, serrated plastic or rubber wheels to give the strings infinite sustain by essentially playing them like a bow, giving McGeoch's guitar the sound of a classical string instrument like a violin. For Arabian Nights, McGeoch transformed a tune initially composed by Susie in waltz rhythm. Spellbound was the lead single from Juju and was released on the 22nd of May 1981. It peaked at number 22 on the UK singles chart. It also reached number 64 on the US National Disco Action Top 80 chart. Melody Maker praised the single, calling it exhilarating. In 2006, Mojo honoured McGeoch by rating him in their list of 100 greatest guitarists of all time for his work on Spellbound. Johnny Marr of The Smiths stated on BBC Radio 2 in February 2008 that he rated McGeoch highly for his work on Spellbound. Marr said it's so clever, he's got this really good picky thing going on which is very un-rock and roll, and this actual tune he's playing is really quite mysterious. Juju was released on the 6th of June and spent 17 weeks on the UK album charts, peaking at number 7. The cover art is a picture of an African statue that the group found at the Horniman Museum in Forest Hill. The album received critical acclaim, with sounds writer Betty Page observing that Susie's voice seems to have acquired a new fullness of melody, with a rich dark smoothness. The way this unit operates is impressively cohesive, like one brain. The inventive musical talents of McGeoch, Budgie and Severin mesh perfectly with Susie. She also praised McGeoch as being the only man who can make an acoustic guitar sound foreboding. The Enemy considered Juju the Banshee's second best album, qualifying it as a peak in entertainment. The magazine's critic, Paul Morley, pointed out his highlights from the album, naming all the songs saying, Side One's Highlights, Spellbound, Into the Light, Arabian Nights, Halloween and Monitor. The most consistent side since the screen. Side Two's Highlights, Night Shift, Sin in My Heart, Head Cut and Voodoo Dolly. Juju is the first integrated and sparkling complete Banshees album since the screen. The second and final single from the album was Arabian Nights, which reached number 32 after its release on the 24th of July 1981. During the recording of Juju, Susie and Budgie secretly became a couple. During one of the studio sessions when Severin and McGeoch were taking a break, 
Susie and Budgie came up with a track called But Not Them, featuring just his drums and her vocals. Deciding that it was complete as a piece, they left it alone, and quickly recorded four more minimal tracks to accompany it. The result was the Wild Things EP, named by Severin, who upon hearing it said it sounded like something the creatures in the book Where the Wild Things Are would have danced to on their island. The title track is a cover version of the Trog's Wild Thing. Susie added extra angry lyrics to the original. So Unreal drew inspiration from the novel The Stepford Wives by Ira Levin and Mad-Eyed Screamer from local characters that met in Hyde Park. The duo incorporated the songs But Not Them, So Unreal and Thumb into Banshee's concerts for many years afterwards. The controversial sleeve art featuring Susie and Budgie half-naked under a shower was inspired by the pictures of Man Ray. Another shoot, inspired by the John Millais painting Ophelia, featured Susie naked under shallow water with flowers floating on top. The EP reached number 24 in the UK singles chart after its release in September 1981, and the pair performed Mad-Eyed Screamer on top of the pops. With allegiances within the band starting to shift, tensions started to grow. Me and Budgie, you know, we kind of, um, we'd had a relationship for probably since the EP, kind of clandestine relationship. And we kind of, you know, I, we, I was very aware of, like, um, that side of things, not making things any worse within the band. So anything personal, I just, that couldn't come within any striking distance of the band. It, it didn't exist. You know, it's not the easiest when, when your other two partners are a couple is makes it a bit difficult because they kind of tend to think in tandem and talk about things when they're you know the normal things um but susie always put the band first anyway the banshees released another standalone non-album single called fireworks on the 21st of may 1982. fireworks was the first collaboration between the band and sound engineer mike hedges who produced the creatures wild thing ep and would become the banshees co-producer on several more albums fireworks was the first song the group included string arrangements on and it peaked at number 22 in the uk singles chart when the band returned to the studio in July, after a tour of Scandinavia in the spring, the group had written three new tracks, Cascade, Painted Bird and Green Fingers. They then embarked on a week of improvisation, sparked off by a tape-looped section of the orchestral version of Fireworks. Susie didn't want to use synthesizers for the string arrangements. She said in an interview with the Record Mirror in 1982, Fireworks indicated the direction we wanted for the album. We wanted strings. John wanted a machine, but Stephen and I said it had to be real strings. They gave a real earthy, rich sound. You could hear the strings spitting and breathing and wheezing. Me and Steve have always wanted our music to be performed by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. We've always thought our songs would suit orchestration. Real strings have a very physical sound.
A Kiss in the Dreamhouse was the first album on which the Banshees really exploited the possibilities of the studio, allowing themselves to be inspired by sounds. Engineer Mike Hedges put different effects on Susie's voice and multi-layered them. He also encouraged the band to experiment with effects and use various instruments including recorders, chimes, tubular bells, loops and vocal overdubs. However, the personal dynamics within the band at this time were less than healthy. The band's manager, Neil Stevenson, had become obsessive in response to her burgeoning relationship with Budgie. The quote on the inner sleeve, Nelly the Elephant packed his trunk and said goodbye to the circus, referred to Stevenson, whom the band nicknamed Nelly, and fired before the recording of the album. The band spent long hours in the studio, fueled by drink and drugs. According to uncut writer Gary Mulholland, the stunningly beautiful music of Dreamhouse was a product of addiction, stress, old sick love and new dangerous love, money woes and a darkness that would eventually claim three lives. The title of A Kiss in the Dreamhouse came to Severin after watching a programme about Hollywood prostitutes in the 1940s who had cosmetic surgery to look like stars so they could get more clients. The Dreamhouse was a brothel in Los Angeles that actually existed where people could meet perfect replicas of the stars at the time, like Mae West. The album's artwork was inspired by the paintings of Gustav Klimt. As the Banshees achieved the richness in music that they desired, they wanted a really colourful sleeve with lots of gold and deep colours to match. The lead single, Slow Dive, was released on the 1st of October 1982 and was seen as the best example of the new, expanded, more psychedelic sound on the forthcoming album. It's a violin-drenched, dancey song with a catchy melodic hook and a definite switch in sound from brooding rock to psychedelic pop. The song just missed becoming a top 40 hit, peaking at number 41 in the UK. A month later, the album was released, becoming a critical and commercial success, peaking at number 11 on the UK Albums Chart. Enemies Richard Cook wrote, A Kiss in the Dreamhouse is a feat of imagination, scarcely ever recorded. It's breathtaking. Somehow, a bold assurance of intention has met with a hunger for experimenting with sound to expand an already formidable group of songs into pure open-minded ambiguity. The flesh of the song will balloon out or contort into unimaginable patterns. Indecipherable echoes volley between the walls of the recording. Glassy, splintered tones pierce the luxuriant sheen of the music. Repeated listens trick the sense of balance. Tremendous risks are taken. I promise, this music will take your breath away. The album was ranked at number 11 in the enemy top albums of the year 1982, with Slow Dive ranked among the year's top 50 tracks. Melody makers Steve Sutherland also welcomed the new musical direction. The Banshees achieve an awesome, effective new pop without so much as a theory or qualm. Dreamhouse is an intoxicating achievement. In October 1982, shortly before the start of a European tour with The Cure to promote the album, McGeoch suffered a nervous breakdown due to the stresses of touring and an increasing alcohol problem. He was fired from the band after collapsing on stage during a performance in Madrid. The pressures were about putting up a, an outstanding performance every night. And, you know, which Susie used to kind of jeers up before we went on stage because, uh, you know, we tried to make each gig special. We'd make up the set list in the dressing room, you know, I 
after the sound check and before the, the concert. It was, in a sense, it was the pursuit of excellence, really, you know, which we pretty much kept up for a long time. We spent the whole year touring, and particularly in Europe and America, the, the touring was very, the circumstances were really tough. And I think it just took its, its toll on him more than anybody else, really. So he kind of had to be rested um, for medical reasons, really. I don't really want to go into much more of it than that. A few shows had started to fuck up. And finally, um, the show we were doing, he was playing another song, you know, Melt During Happy House. And, and I mean, Lich and didn't know. I mean, he was just gone. Completely gone. Um, and I just played a terrible gig. And, uh, you know, we flew home. And that was it. It was beyond knuckle wrapping. You know, it was unpardonable. Speaking to Susie later, she said that she thought I had ceased to want to be a banshee. Robert Smith was once again asked to fill in and was officially made a member of the Banshees. He knew all the songs, you know, there was only one person who knew them better was McGeoch. And um, it was just obvious, and he basically put the cure on hold. So it suited him to come on board the Banshees again and uh, ride the gravy train to weirdness. <laughs> he said, well, I, would, I played with you last time, but we didn't record, so this time we've got to make a record together before this all disintegrates. There was always the, the notion that he would have to get back to work, you know, to his real life. Robert was sort of um, like a little little brother to Severin. You know, Severin was kind of dressing him up and showing how to wear shades and letting him borrow his, you know, white jacket and jewellery, you know, his crucifixes and that. Um, it was also a time when he started um, experimenting my lipstick and... <laughs> he got his trademark um, lipstick from Susie's lipstick. He asked her for it one day when we were at a club and came back from the, from the gents wearing it and that was it, it began. <laughs> Not very good, I wish he'd use a mirror to put that lipstick on. <laughs> and Susie still wants the wig back but, you know, it's probably a bit ratty by now. <laughs> on the 26th of November, the second single from the album Melt was released as a double A-side with the song Il le Divine Enfant an adaptation of a traditional French Christmas carol, which did not appear on the album. The lyrics of Melt compare an intense sexual interlude with a lover to dying. Its lyrics can also allude to S&M, handcuffed in lace, blood and sperm, swimming in poison, gasping in the fragrance, sweat carves a screenplay of discipline and devotion. Dave Morrison of Select Magazine observed that the Baudelairean imagery of Melt evokes claustrophobic sense of opium, sex and sickly flowers and lapses into morbidity with lines like You are the melting man and as you melt you are beheaded. The single reached number 49 in the UK. McGeoch took a year off, returning to music in 1983 in the new wave band The Armoury Show until it broke up in 1988, just before the release of its second album. He had also joined Public Image Limited in 1986. 
there's no adverts in newspapers or anything like that with me. It's just people I run into. Uh, worked with very many, like, very incredible good musicians too. Uh, like John McGeeck, for instance. That was a fan, you know. I nearly asked for his autograph. No. I met him in New York. I met John in New York in about 1982 when I was over there with the Banshees. Um, and we, we hit it off. We went out and got drunk. And he cooked a turkey. Can you believe it? He really did cook a turkey. He's, he's a partner. The fun with him would be he is such an incredibly good guitarist that I really liked working almost against that. So he'd be deliberately structured tune-wise, and I would deliberately play opposite that. I thought that that made for some damn exciting sound moments. We were very big in America. Couldn't get arrested in the UK. We did 140 gigs one year in, in North America, and Japan, and places like that, and two in England. Despite being struck in the face with a bottle thrown from the crowd during one of his first gigs with Bill, McGeoch remained with the band until it disbanded in 1992, making him the longest serving member apart from John Lydon. He played on the albums Happy, Nine and That What Is Not. After a number of further projects failed to get off the ground, McGeoch retired from professional music in the mid-1990s and trained as a carer. McGeoch died in his sleep on the 4th of March 2004 at his home in Launceston, Cornwall. He was 48. In a tribute on the Banshee's website, Budgie wrote, Without any disrespect to all the other guitarists we've worked with, none have the relaxed mastery and such a depth of expression as John McGeoch. No amount of scrutiny of filmed live performance tapes could reveal the subtle economy of technique that made an apparently complex phrase look so deceptively simple. Exasperated guitarists would often comment, but his hands don't even move. McGeoch has been cited by many artists as a major influence. Johnny Marr from The Smiths has said, When I was in my teens, there weren't many new guitar players who were interesting and of their time. John McGeoch's work was really innovative guitar music, which was pretty hard to find back then. To a young guitar player like myself, those early Banshee singles were just class. Radiohead's Ed O'Brien cited him as a big influence. The band's bassist Colin Greenwood said they were inspired by McGeoch on the recording of the single There There. He explained that they were in seventh heaven when their producer Nigel Godrich made Johnny Greenwood sound like Susie in the Banshee's era McGeoch for that session. U2's The Edge has also cited McGeoch as an influence. Dave Navarro of Jane's Addiction said that he learned guitar by listening to the albums McGeoch recorded with Susie and the Banshees. John Frusciante of Red Hot Chili Peppers named McGeoch as his primary influence. McGeoch is a guitarist I aspire to be. He has a new brilliant idea for each song. I usually play on the stuff he does on magazines albums and Susie and the Banshees, like Juju. During 1983, the band members worked on several side projects. 
Susie and Budgie recorded and released Feast, the first full-length album by their side project, The Creatures, co-produced by Hedges. They decided where to record the album by randomly placing a pin on a map of the world. The result was Hawaii, which led to the Lamalani Hula Academy Hawaiian chanters being featured on some tracks. Several songs are about their experiences in that region, including Festival of Colours and A Strutting Rooster. Musically, the album, which was recorded in January of 1983, is steeped in exotica and tropical backdrops. The song title, Inoa Ole, is Hawaiian for no name. Ice House was inspired by an obscure television play, while single Miss the Girl was inspired by the J.G. Ballard novel Crash. Dancing on Glass was based on an Indian musical. During the session, the sounds of broken glass were created by Susie and Budgie, dancing on broken mirrors while wearing tough shoes. Miss the Girl, which featured a marimba as well as percussion, was released as a single on the 15th of April, where it peaked at number 21 in the UK. The album, Feast, was released on the 15th of May by Polydor and the Wonderland label that had been set up by the Banshees. It peaked at number 17 on the UK albums chart. Paul Prayag of the Record Mirror awarded it a score of 4 out of 5, writing, Susie and Budgie are wandering deeper and deeper into a jungle that looks like having no easily definable boundaries. Melody Maker described Feast as an album of filtered brilliance, fertile, sensual and erotic, an album that, in its desperate naivety, attempts to articulate that moment when the monsoon ends, when the smell and the heat conspire in a perfumed mist and life sprouts instantly, green and luxurious. Reviewer Mark Brennan said it was breathlessly exotic and breathtakingly erotic. The enemy also said the creatures have assembled a multifarious sonic boom that is as various and kaleidoscopic as can be imagined. The humours of Sue's frosty larynx are nakedly outlined against skins of sometimes fabulous quality. The drum sound on Ice House must be one of the greatest on record. During the week of its release, the band were on the front cover of both Melody Maker and The Enemy. Shortly after Miss the Girl's exit from the charts, a follow-up, Right Now, was recorded, a cover of a 1960s jazz song by Mel Torme. The Creatures revamped it by adding a timpani and a brass section. The hit-and-run horns, led by Gary Barnacle, who had previously collaborated with The Clash and The Ruts. The song became The Creatures' most successful single, reaching number 14 in the chart, and led them to appearing on top of the pops. Melody Maker's Paul Colbert said in his review, the creatures slipped through an unlocked back window, ransacked the place and left with the best ideas in a fast car. Like all the greatest criminal minds, they strike without a warning, and only they know the plan. We have to piece the clues into a cover story. From the earliest seconds of right now, you know you're on shifting ground. Susie, Barbar debapping away to the noise of her own fingers, clicking until Budgie barges in with congas on speed. Christ, which way is this going? The one direction you don't expect is a vagrant big band coughing out drunken bursts of brass in a starlight room of its own making. Budgie and Susie, the Fred and Ginger of the wayward world. Number one's Paul Bursch shared the same point of view, writing a big blast of 60s swing-laced with a deft 80s touch sung by none other than the graceful Susie. 
Releasing a cover version of Mel Torme's classic is about the most alternative thing the creatures could have done, and it works. The siren really sounds great as layer after layer of multi-track voice gets going. And wait for the video, a gold-plated hit for sure. The video he was talking about features Susie covered in golden powder. It was directed by Tim Pope. Right Now was later included on the band's 1997 compilation album, A Bestiary Of. It was also featured in the soundtrack of My Best Friend's Birthday, an early work by film director Quentin Tarantino, made in 1987, the plot of which is quite close to that of True Romance, which he wrote and was released in 1993. Meanwhile, Severin collaborated with Robert Smith on a project called The Glove, which was formed during a period when they were both under heavy stress in their respective bands. In June 1982, Smith was on the verge of a breakdown, drained from the production of The Cure's bleakest album, Pornography, and its tour, substance abuse and band infighting that led to the departure of bassist Simon Gallup. His state of mind had been no easier since becoming a member of the Banshees and going on tour with them playing with both bands every night. The glove's name referred to the enormous flying glove in the Beatles 1968 animated movie Yellow Submarine. Their album's title Blue Sunshine referred to the horror film of the same name in which people who took the fictional Blue Sunshine variety of LSD became psychotic murderers ten years later. Writing on Severin's website in the year 2000, Smith described the recording sessions as unreal. We spent 12 weeks in the studio but actually recorded for about five days. The rest of the time was spent having an endless party to which we invited a succession of people. It was like a station. Once they got really out of it, they'd be moved on and the next batch brought in. In between all this, we'd record a piece of piano or drum. During that time, the duo stayed up most of the nights watching video nasties, including Dario Argento films. Since Smith was contractually prohibited from singing with another band, one of the reasons he cited for the 2001 split from The Cure's longtime label, Jeanette Landre, an ex-girlfriend of Budgie and former member of the dance troupe Zoo, was recruited as the lead singer. However, Smith did sing on the song Perfect Murder. Other musicians involved in this project were Andy Anderson on drums, who later joined The Cure, Martin McCarrick on keyboard and strings, who later joined The Banshees, and Ginny Hughes and Anne Stevenson on strings. Severin wrote the lyrics to all the songs, except Like an Animal, Sex Eye Makeup and Perfect Murder, which were written by Smith, and Punish Me With Kisses, on which the two collaborated. Neither the album nor both of its singles, Like an Animal and Punish Me With Kisses, charted upon their releases in August and November in 1983, due mainly to the fact that The Banshees released its highest selling single in September, and the first to feature Smith as a member of the band. Blue Sunshine was remastered and re-released as a two-CD set on the 8th of August 2006, alongside three Cure re-releases. On the second disc, a dozen unreleased demo versions sung by Smith appear for the first time. To commemorate Record Store Day in 2013, a limited edition blue-coloured vinyl version of the LP was produced.
The Banshees had already recorded a cover of a Beatles song, a version of Helter Skelter, on their 1978 album The Scream. Susie proposed they do another one while they were listening to a lot of Beatles music while touring Scandinavia. According to Budgie in the Banshees' authorised biography, they were all big fans of the White Album except for Smith, but they settled on Dear Prudence because it was the one song he knew. Severin recalled that Budgie originally wanted to cover Glass Onion, but it was so obvious to him that Dear Prudence was the one, adding that the track particularly appealed to him because John Lennon's version sounds a bit unfinished, a sentiment with which Susie agreed. I think because of uh, the, the song on the album sounded very much maybe half finished, I mean it wasn't that strongly concluded on the White Album, so. Um, as far as I'm concerned, if you're going to cover a song, then you should add to it and make it your own rather than do a direct copy. So mm. there was room to do that with that song. Well, with that attitude, didn't you get any kind of negative criticisms from diehard Beatles fans? Mm. Well, no. I mean, a lot of people thought it was one of our own songs anyway. Yeah, but... that's how diehard the Beatles fans <laughs> They recorded the song at a studio in Stockholm in July 1983 and completed it at Angel Studios in North London, where Smith's sister Janet added a harpsichord part. This version of the song became the band's biggest British hit, peaking at number three on the UK singles chart. The success came as a surprise to Susie, who later said, It was a surprise, but it didn't really sink in until we'd finished the touring and we were back home for the winter. Then we thought, blimey, we've got to number three. The single was kept from the top of the charts by Culture Club's Karma Chameleon, much to the chagrin of Susie and the Banshees. In the wake of the single's success, the band performed the track on the Christmas Top of the Pop show. Susie said of this performance, I don't remember much about doing it, except for I was wearing a new leather dress that a friend of mine had made for me and stripy tights. Beatles scholar Tim Riley cites in his book Tell Me Why, The Beatles, album by album, song by song, the 60s and after, that Susie and the Banshees would choose to record a song by the Beatles as evidence of the latter's pervasive influence, and he describes this version as a surprisingly effective distortion of the Beatles' elegiac original. Further to his view on the spookiness evident in the Beatles' 1968 recording, another author, David Quantic, says in his book Revolution, The Making of the Beatles' White Album, that the original song's ambience was so at odds with the floaty hippie vibe of India that this characteristic goes a long way towards explaining why the 1980s punk, psychedelic goth band Susie and the Banshees were able to cover the song so successfully, bringing out its buried but implicit sun-blinded sense of menace. They then released a live album, Nocturne, in November, which had been recorded over two shows at the Royal Albert Hall on the 30th of September and the 1st of October 1983. Straight away, the Banshees started recording their sixth studio album, Hyena, across four studios in two countries. 
On the 16th of March 1984, the lead single from Hyena, Swimming Horses, was released. The song was based on a piano-driven melody. Susie explained the strong issue behind the lyrics. This is based on a programme I saw about a female version of Amnesty called Les Sentinentelles. They rescue women who are trapped in certain religious climates in the Middle East, religions that view any kind of premarital sexual aspersion as punishable by death, either by the hand of the eldest brother in the family or by public stoning. And there was this instance of a woman whose daughter had developed a tumour, and of course, gossip abounded that she was pregnant. The doctor who removed the tumour allowed her to take it back to the village to prove that no, it wasn't a baby, but they wouldn't believe her. The woman knew her daughter would have to be stoned to death, so she poisoned her out of kindness to save her from a worse fate. Now this organisation has all these escape routes for women like her, mainly through the elder brother who pretends to have killed them. But once they've been saved, they can never go back. So the song starts, kinder than with poison. I also use the imagery of he gives birth to swimming horses from the fact that male seahorses give birth to the children. So they're the only species that have a maternal feel for the young. It was, I suppose, an abstract way of linking it all together without being sensationalist. I remember just being really moved by that programme and wanting to get the sorrow out of me. The song reached number 28 in the UK and Smith went on to use the piano part in the song six different ways from The Cure's 1985 album The Head on the Door. The second single, Dazzle, was released on the 25th of May and is a shorter radio-friendly edit compared to the album version. It starts off with a gradual fade-in of an orchestral string section and progresses to become a drum-driven, majestic anthem. The lyrics were derived from the final scene of Marathon Man, where Laurence Olivier puts diamonds in his mouth. Susie's vocals are accentuated by expansive reverb effects. The string section piece that opens the track was actually called Baby Piano, which Susie originally scored on piano. The piece was rescored by Martin McCarrick, who would become an official member of the Banshees in 1987, and was played by musicians from the London Symphonic Orchestra, a 27-piece orchestra called the Chandos Players. Shortly before the album was released, Smith left the group, citing health issues due to an overloaded schedule, trying to balance being in two bands at once. Susie explained, It was an insane period for us, extremely busy. We were just being totally hyperactive. I think it took its toll maybe a year or so later. John had been hospitalised for stress and overworking, so he was suffering for a bit. Robert stepped in for the second time, as he did in 79. So the show was still going on, and the touring was all pretty intense and crazy. We went on to record Hyena together, and then he imploded as well. He just couldn't cope with it. I missed singing, mainly, and Sue would never let me sing, and because uh, she knew that I was too threatening. And also, um, I, I sort of missed the, the control that I've got in The Cure, of being able to say, right, we'll do this, or we won't do this, which is more important. And I'd say, well, we're not going to tour, we're not going to play concerts, um, because I, I want to go and do something else. And the bounces, I was like the fourth and quietest voice. I'd be like in, in, the, in the corner waving, going, no, please, you know, not another tour. 
So uh, eventually I just had to had to stop. But it was all right. I mean, Seven and Budgie were all right about it. I'm not sure about how the old witch took it. Probably very well. I imagine she's such a well-balanced girl. Post-departure, she coined the nickname Fat Bob for Smith. I was only pissed off at him for letting me down, she says. That's unforgivable. Not turning up for a tour, that's a crime. We're rehearsing here for the eve of another tour in which uh, another guitarist has bitten the dust, which is Robert Smith, and uh, we're preparing someone else to die shortly. I think because this group is... Um, uh, well, me and Stephen, anyway, we're very much self-taught musicians or whatever, with, without any kind of um, I know, rock and roll background. Do you know what I mean? We picked up instruments and found how to play them. So therefore, that it's, uh, it's quite different working with musicians, so they have to unlearn a lot of things to be able to... I don't know, I think, I think a lot of um, how people learn music is quite limiting. Is that the reason why you had you always had difficulties with your guitar players? Yeah, they're 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 probably the most proficient musicians, but that their minds aren't that open. So you always had to crack them, sort of. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, suicidal. <laughs> After its release on the 8th of June, Hyena reached number 15 in the UK albums chart, as well as charting strongly in Sweden, Australia, and New Zealand. And thanks to being released by Geffen Records in the US, became the band's first album to chart in America where it reached number 157 on the Billboard Top 200. The US version of the album included the non-album single Dear Prudence. Hyena was largely well received upon release. Melody Maker wrote parts of it are so wistfully carefree that it's impossible not to credit Robert Smith as the talisman. His irreverence seems to course through everything. Take Me Back is the Banshees rollicking like some primitive jazz combo drunk on the good lord's wine. On Belladonna, Smith's liquid guitar relaxes Susie to the extent that she drops a few masks to reveal her vulnerability. When the siren sings, daylight devours your unguarded hours, she's illuminating her own predicament so acutely it surely can't be coincidence. Dazzle, too, is naively daring. Susie's voice framed alone against the firmament of strings it could be Lloyd Webber's Cats or something by Vaughan Williams. You can get impressed, wrapped up and lost in this. John Valentine Carruthers, guitarist from the post-punk industrial group Clock DVA, replaced Smith in the Banshees. To induct him into the band, Susie decided to record an EP in Bavaria, Germany, where the new lineup would re-record four tracks that had evolved on tour, and to see what some of them would sound like with string arrangements added, scored again by McCarrick. Before finding John the guitarist, um, we initially um, approached Martin McCarrick to join the group because I think, as far as looking for, you know, like the sixth guitarist, we, we thought, well, we ought to look in a different way, maybe. And uh, Martin's had a very classical background of instruments with cello and piano, and, but um, he, he wasn't accepted within the institution, so he, he was very much an outsider. Um, and it's really helped us a lot. He's worked with us since um, Hyena, the scoring Dazzle, songs like that. Um, and it was just a very natural choice to think of him first and then uh, 
look for a guitarist. I mean, John, I, I think John's really good, but I think the good thing is that the onus and the pressure has been taken off being the next bunchy guitarist with like a big sledgehammer <laughs> over his head. And it's it's very much it's the guitar's there to add to things, not to be there for the sake of it. The four tracks included on the Thorn EP are Overground, which originally appeared on the Banshee's debut album, The Scream, Placebo Effect, which was a song from their second album, Join Hands, while Voices and Red Over White were previously released as B-sides from the singles Hong Kong Garden and Israel, respectively. The EP was eligible to be released in the singles chart, and it eventually reached number 47 after its release on the 19th of October 1984. The enemy praised the project by saying the power of a classical orchestra is the perfect foil for the band's grindingly insistent sounds. The new Banshees lineup spent between May and September of 1985 working on its seventh record, Tinderbox. The group finished the song Cities in Dust in the Matrix studio in London before heading off to Berlin to record the album as a whole. So the song was rushed out as a single on the 18th of October, just before their longest tour of the UK. Cities in Dust is a dance pop song that describes the Italian city of Pompeii, which was destroyed in a volcanic eruption in 79 AD. The single reached number 21 in the UK, 17 on the US dance disco chart, 22 in Ireland and 37 in Holland. Spin reviewer John Leyland said this is an intoxicating, wonderful commercial dance record without losing their edge. In a month of good dance records, this is the best, and noted that it was full-bodied, dense, with layers of chugging funk guitars, toy piano and various electronic things. He concluded with praise for Susie's performance, saying, It's rare these days to find a full production job that draws its identity from the voice. The second single, Candyman, was released on the 28th of February 1986. The song is about child abuse. Musically, it's a guitar-based number with distinctive use of arpeggios by Carruthers. Melody Maker said it was thrilling, big and brash and clashing. Its many parts combined to form one spirited, unpredictable, yet wholly coordinated outburst, while Susie's voice, in confident control, bounces up and down and around the repeating motifs and unexpected twists of arrangements. Candyman peaked at number 34 in the UK singles chart. Tinderbox was finally released on the 21st of April. The cover image is a picture of a tornado taken by Lucille Handberg near the town of Jasper, Minnesota on the 8th of July 1927. The same photograph has previously been used on the covers of the 1970 Miles Davis classic Bitches Brew and Deep Purple's 1974 album Stormbringer. The album was well received by critics. Sounds Kevin Murphy wrote, Tinderbox romps and swoons with all the majesty of Dreamhouse, adding, it's a refreshing slant on the Banshee's disturbing perspective and restores their vivid shades to Pop's pale palette. John Savage wrote in Spin magazine, its scope, ease and assurance make it a good collection for the Banshees to relaunch themselves into the international market this spring. 
Carruthers fits in to the point that you wouldn't know there was a change, and Budgie's drumming is superb. Apart from the single Cities in Dust and Candyman, which perpetuates the Banshee's sinister view of childhood, the sparks fly on the crystal clear cannons and the unsettling parties fall. So would you say that uh, Tinderbox marks a turning point for the band? This album seems to be the one that, that will probably open up the doors wide open for you uh, in North America. Um, I doubt it. You don't think so? <laughs> you don't think so? No. no? Well, not particularly. No. Does it bother you at all to know that North America is such a particular market and so difficult for the Banshees? Um, I don't know. We've, we've never really approached the market um, mm. in that way as cracking America or cracking this market. We, we really just um, tour where we want to, where we haven't been before. And um, it's a bonus if it's commercially successful, but it's not really the um, ulterior motive behind why we're here. Mm. I mean, we want to appeal to a, a vast audience, but the fact that we don't doesn't bother us. Due to the length of time they'd spent working on Tinderbox, the group decided to record a quick album of cover songs through The Looking Glass in 1987. The album was preceded by their cover of the Bob Dylan and the band's This Wheel's On Fire, though the Banshees didn't know the song had been composed by Dylan. They covered it because they liked Julie Driscoll's version. This single reached number 14 in the UK. The title of the record, Through the Looking Glass, referred to Lewis Carroll's book of the same name. It was also an ode to David Bowie's Pinups, a covers album he recorded in the 1970s. For the Looking Glass sessions, which took place in September and October 86, they chose material mainly dating from the first half of the 70s, from an era preceding the formation of the band, from artists who had influenced them, Roxy Music, John Cale, Iggy Pop, The Doors and Kraftwerk. As well as a string section orchestrated by McCarrick, other instrumentalists were hired to work on the album, including a brass section and a harpist. The album was released on the 2nd of March, where it reached number 15 in the UK, as well as charting in six other countries. Ralph Hutter of Kraftwerk praised the Banshees' version of his band's song, Hall of Mirrors, saying, In general, we consider cover versions as an appreciation of our work. The version of Hall of Mirrors used by Susie and the Banshees is extraordinary. Iggy Pop said of their cover of The Passenger, the second single off the album which reached number 41 in the UK, that's good, she sings it well, and she threw in a little note when she sings it that I wish I'd thought of. It kind of improves it. The horn thing's good. The LA Times wrote about the album, These songs are superbly rearranged, retaining enough of what was special about the originals and adding just the right new twists. Critic Terry Atkinson wrote about their cover of Strange Fruit, Only someone as brash as Susie Sue would re-record Lewis Allen's Strange Fruit, a song so strongly identified with Billie Holiday, and only someone as serious and sensitive could bring it off like this. 
a solemn string section behind the vocals and, best of all, a bridge of New Orleans funeral march jazz enhanced Susie's evocative interpretation. Such inventive touches permeate a great album. Trust in me. Sounds praise the rendition of Trust in Me as quite astonishing, whereas once it was about a python getting ready to crush a little boy to death, now it's a harp-laden lullaby of rampant, swirling eroticism. After the album's release, the band realised Carruthers was no longer fitting in and decided to work on new material as a trio. Before going on a well-earned break, the remaining three banshees recorded an up-tempo standalone single called Song From The Edge Of The World with McCarrick on keyboard and guitarist John Klein, whose goth rock band Specimen had broken up a year or two before and who owned the London goth club The Bat Cave. The song peaked at number 55 in the UK upon its release on the 13th of July 1987. Later that year, both McCarrick and Klein were made official members of the Banshees and the band went back into the studio in January 1988 to record the next, more experimental album, Peep Show. The lead single and first track on the album is called Peekaboo and was the perfect choice to showcase the avant-garde sound of the new material. The song's peculiar sound is based on a sample loop of a brass part played in reverse, which the group previously arranged a year before for a cover of John Cale's Gun on the Through the Looking Glass album. The band selected different parts of the tape, editing them and re-recording on top of it adding a different melody plus accordion, a one-note bass line, discordant guitar, and a new drum beat from the original orchestration. Once the instrumental parts were finished, Susie sang her lyrics over it using a different microphone for each line of the song. It took the band a year to arrive at the finished track. It was originally meant to be a B-side to the 1987 version of the Passenger single, but the band realised the song was too good to be relegated to B-side status and deserved better exposure. Peekaboo charted at number 16 in the UK upon its release on the 18th of July and was the group's first single to chart in the US Billboard Hot 100, reaching number 53 in the week of the 3rd of December. The song was very popular on alternative rock radio stations and received heavy play on MTV. In September, Billboard magazine premiered a new Modern Rock Tracks chart which measured radio airplay on US modern rock stations and Peekaboo was that chart's first number one. Melody Maker described the song as a brightly unexpected mixture of black steel and pop disturbance, describing it as 30s hip-hop. Sounds and NME both rated it as single of the week. Sounds wrote that it was a brave move, playful and mysterious, while the NME described it as oriental marching band hip-hop with catchy accordion. They then said if this nation was served by anything approaching a decent pop radio station, Peekaboo would be a huge hit. A minor controversy ensued after the single's release as the lines to the chorus Golly Jeepers, Where'd You Get Those Weepers? Peep Show, Creep Show, Where'd You Get Those Eyes? were found to be too similar to the lyrics in the 1938 song Jeepers Creepers. Jeepers, 
To remedy the situation and to avoid legal action, the band gave co-songwriting credits on Peekaboo to Harry Warren and Johnny Mercer. Rap artist Sir Mix-a-Lot used elements of the song's themes about sex work for the song The Peekaboo Game on his 1989 album Seminar. Although while initial pressings featured actual samples from the song, these were edited out of repressed versions of the album. The album Peep Show was released on the 5th of September and reached number 20 in the UK album chart, 68 on the US Billboard 200 and 64 in Germany, receiving critical acclaim. Q wrote in its five-star review, Peep Show takes place in some distorted fairground of the mind where weird and wonderful shapes loom. Reviewer Mark Cooper hailed Martin McCarrick's accordion that pokes its way into Peekaboo, a carny piece of musical imagination. He noted that the rest of the record bursts with similar acts of imagination, saying full honours go to the aforementioned McCarrick for all manner of shrewd decorations and drummer Budgie for endlessly inventive rhythm work that manages to pinpoint the tension inherent in each song without ever lapsing into an obvious beat. Melody Maker praised the band for the ballad The Last Beat of My Heart. Chris Roberts said the infinite pinnacle is their one joint effort, the bravura hymn the last beat of my heart. As McCarrick's accordion and Budgie's directly intelligent rhythms underlie its pathos, this elegy is translated by Sue with capital beatitude. It's the Banshee's most courageous arabesque in some time. The record Mirror also particularly enjoyed that song when reviewing the album. The highlight is the restrained The Last Beat of My Heart, where Susie's voice explores new ground as she caresses a haunting melody. Reviewer Kevin Murphy concluded by saying, Brimming with confidence, Peep Show is the Banshee's finest hour. NME noted a change of approach in the musical direction. Peep Show is the best Banshee's record since A Kiss in the Dreamhouse because it's the Banshee's deciding to be a pop band rather than a rock group. Spin published a glowing review of the album in their November issue. Discussing Peekaboo, critic Tony Fletcher said that its mood fell in perfectly with their beloved London summer fascination with Acid House. He described the music of Peekaboo as a crazed assortment of fairground accordions, abrupt horns, distant to and fro vocals, exotic, erotic, a dance floor winner for sure, and all of three minutes short. Fletcher also said about the other tracks, an almost lilting reggae feel to the beginning of Killing Jar, a fragile waif-like Susie backed only by translucent guitar and a keyboard bass on the brief raw head and bloody bones, and a delightful majestic ballad the likes of which it had been a safe assumption was beyond their reach on the last beat of my heart. As Peep Show ends with the drawn-out rhapsody, Susie's operatic fling seemed to be a celebration of her reawakened capacity to thrill. She and the band sound as confident, abandoned and excited as when they started. In Stereo Review, the album was published in the column Best of the Month. Reviewer Park Putterball wrote that the record was a fascinating plunge into the subconscious and was dreamlike and hypnotic. Peep Show brims with non-linear logic, compulsive rhythms and icy crystalline textures. The critic concluded his review qualifying it as an utterly unconventional and thoroughly intoxicating album. A transcendent feat. They are not playing music, the music is playing them. 
The second single from the album, The Killing Jar, was released on the 30th of September. It's an up-tempo pop song, which reached number 41 in the UK, and almost equaled the success of Peekaboo in the US by charting at number 2 on the Modern Rock Tracks chart. The third and final single released from the album on the 21st of November was the ballad The Last Beat of My Heart. Sue's vocals are sung to a lover who is leaving a relationship, asking him to return to her, declaring her desire to be close to you till the last beat of my heart. The song reached number 44 in the UK. Several musicians have talked about the influence of the song or their love for it. The Decemberists have labelled it as one of their favourite Susie and the Banshees songs. Arcade Fire singer Wynne Butler suggested to the band Devochka that they should cover it, and their version appears on the 2006 EP Curse Your Little Heart. The Flowers of Hell released a version on their 2012 album Odes, an album of covers by bands that influenced them. After the subsequent tour, the band decided to take a well-earned break. While in the Lake District, Susie and Budgie ran into former guitarist John McKay for the first time since he'd left the band in 1979 outside the record shop in Aberdeen. McKay was there on his honeymoon. We went down to dinner that night and went to sit down and uh, our hosts came over and said, no, we've got a table for you, it's just over here. And we looked down to the other end of the room and there sitting in the bay window was Susie and Budgie. Oh, so we end up being like, the, like some, four of maybe eight residents in this hotel isolate in the middle of the Lake District, and we're just sitting there. What are we going to talk about? You know, Sue and I hadn't spoken since 79, basically. Uh, and we sat down and had the meal. We all had indigestion, I think. Linda got a bottle of vodka from the room and got us talking. And by the end of the evening, we kind of patched things up. I don't know if we'd actually covered everything, but we understood one another a bit more. And it wasn't daggers drawn anymore. And it was just such a, an incredible coincidence anyway that, you know, it's the sort of thing you can't fight. In this time, Susie and Budgie returned to their Creatures project. It just felt like a good time to stop what, I was, what we were doing with the Banshees then to do the next album, because we'd want a gap anyway to do another album. And... Now, it's something that was at the back of the mind to want to do. Well, everybody's been asking us for ages, when are you going to do the next one, you know? We kept saying, well, we don't have to do it, so we just do it when we feel like it. And um, we, were, we were starting to feel like it. I mean, we were, I mean, so some of the stuff is like, built, been building up for six years, you know? They recorded their second album, Boomerang, in a ranch in Jerez, Spain, with producer Mike Hedges, except the brass arrangements that were recorded later in London with Peter Toms on trombone, Gary Barnacle on saxophone, and Nico Tommaso on trumpet. Budgie conceived the brass arrangements with Peter Toms. They both had previously worked with the horn section six years earlier on the Right Now single. We took out a 16-trap mobile desk. It's like a, you know, it's a, a, an antiquated mobile recording desk. It's about 20 years old. And the thing like wasn't used to having dust and the heat and things and um, we set it up in um, a stone barn which had like uh, house martins nesting under the eaves you know and there were so there, there was like eggs in the nest and we set up the equipment so by the time we finished recording these little birds had hatched and were ready to fly the nest and um, hence there is a lot of um, feeding time noises on the album as well it's very uncontrollable place to go i mean it was really good it's like 
like camping for the first time, finding out what it's like not to have a bathroom. And we're in this one room, there's no separation. We recorded, mixed, and did ideas all in this one big um, sort of uh, cobbled room. And uh, I don't know, it, it had all the pluses, plus some of the drawbacks of camping. The first single from the album was Standing There. The lyrical content of the song was explained by Budgie in an interview with the Record Mirror in November 1989. It's about the direct contact you get on the street. It's not just verbal abuse anymore. You see them up ahead and wonder, should I cross over the road or turn around and go back? They're making you think about regular things. If you're walking around with your guard up all the time, you'll always get it if you look a bit different. They go, are you a boy or a girl, darling? I used to get beaten up and pushed through shop windows in Liverpool in 1977 and nothing's changed. There's something that I think is quite obvious what it's about and it's against uh, the sort of grouping together of men it, you know, it can, uh, and how they single out one person in the street and it's usually a woman that they feel tough enough to pick on and uh, it's, it's really amusing flamenco as, uh, as expressing that sort of giving give back what they give a bit, you know, there's a very right. strong image for women within flamenco, although in real life it's, it's a very even more extreme reality that they have to contend with, the real macho lifestyles. But I think through the flamenco they, they can exercise their demons and get the upper hand. Melody makers Steve Sutherland said of the song in his review, Standing There, the stampeding first single from the Boomerang album, deals with this self-same battle of the sexes, but deliberately brings it all back home. In the US, the song got a lot of play on alternative radio stations, and it peaked at number four on the Billboard Modern Rock Tracks chart in January 1990. The album was released on the 6th of November 1989 to critical acclaim. Enemies Roger Morton qualified it as a rich and unsettling landscape of exotica, praising the preeminence of Budgie's Spanish tribal jazz drumming. Simon Reynolds of Melody Maker stated that Boomerang abounds with scarcely anticipated brilliance, qualifying it as inventive and invigorated music. There's a lot of musical diversity on the record. Each of the 14 tracks has something different to offer. For example, Manchild features a flamenco rhythmic inflection, while the trumpet-tinged Strolling Wolf certainly evokes their Iberian surroundings. Blues and jazz elements are also featured on the album, such as on Killing Time and Willow. Pluto Drive marries a sassy, low R&B bass to futuristic ambient sound with electronic loops. Pity is a lullaby with Jamaican steel drums. Explaining the song Manchild, Budgie said, it's a story based in Colombia before the drugs cartel. It's about a small child caught up in a feud. This vendetta between his village and another rival village. In a minor way, it is all about drug trafficking, but ends with the stronger village wiping out the whole male population of the other village until there was just one boy left called Nelsito. It was understood that he would live till he was at least 18 before he was assassinated, but he was shot on the way to school. He also commented on Willow. It's kind of about how my mother died as it was a black area and I hadn't realised what had happened until I saw my brother. He told me what went on with the family and I never really knew until a year afterwards and I wrote it down directly after that. The second single, Fury Eyes, was released on the 19th of February 1990, just before the duo's first ever European tour. 
The song was inspired by the 1989 novel In the Eyes of Mr. Fury by Philip Ridley. Again, the song was popular on US alternative radio, reaching number 12 on the Billboard Modern Rock Tracks chart in March. Meanwhile, Severin and McCarrick also worked on a project together, the soundtrack for the film Visions of Ecstasy from 1989. Nigel Wingrove's short sensual fantasy film interprets the writings of St. Teresa of Avia and remained unreleased until 2012 as it had been refused a certificate on the grounds of blasphemy, the only film banned for this by the British Board of Film Classification. The four parts written by Severin for the soundtrack, Sphere, Come Deliver Us, Skin Crawl and Transverberation of the Heart formed the basis for his first post-Banshee's solo album. Released almost ten years later, this album, Visions, features four tracks derived from the original pieces written for the film, plus another five instrumentals. Severin completely reworked the soundtrack, originally 18 minutes long, into a 45-minute ambient album. It was also the first release by Severin's RE record label. Visions was first only available via Severin's website and was later distributed by Cargo. By the end of 1990, the Banshees were back in the studio recording their 10th album between December of that year and April of 1991 at Rack Studios in London. This time, the Banshees were recording with a different producer, rather than their longtime collaborator Mike Hedges. Superstition was produced by Stephen Haig, known for working with New Order. Haig used techniques that Sue did not approve of later, such as computer-based production. She stated in a 1992 interview with Rock World magazine, There are still things I like on it, like Kiss Them For Me and Drifter, but we were trying a different kind of working style, a different kind of discipline, during which I really built a strong case against computers. The first single to be released from the album was Kiss Them For Me on the 13th of May 1991. Around the same time, she and Budgie got married and moved to the southwest of France. In an interview with William Shaw in 2005, Susie said of her marriage to Budgie, I think that precipitated the separation. A band, it's like a family. There are always ups and downs. I think it's a sign of immaturity that you can't deal with them as they happen. Me and Budgie would be going through things with Martin and John, working things out. Uh, you know, Severin would be sulking in his room. <laughs> you know, for God's sake, we bloody Pink Floyd or all of a sudden, you know, that, you know, shall we reconvene in 1995 or whatever? There were no distractions and I think, again, that was another kind of um, conflict. I think he quite welcomed distractions. You know, things haven't gone well in the studio, you just pop into Soho and have a few drinks and get your mind off it, meet different people and whatever. And that's always the way I've I kind of coped with it, but, you know, distractions in a social sense as opposed to uh, just going to the garden and see how the, you know, how the rhododendrons are doing. <laughs> You'd rather sit and have a fag and think about it rather than, like, breathe in the air and feel rejuvenated. It's not really my cup of char. So I think he had quite a miserable time. The song presented a change in musical direction for Susie and the Banshees, adopting a much more straightforward, pop-oriented feel than previous efforts, due in part to Haig's production work. 
Susie Sue's cryptic lyrics were an ode to actress and sex symbol Jane Mansfield, using the actress's catchword divouille, referring to her heart-shaped swimming pool and her love of champagne and parties, and to the grisly automobile accident which claimed her life in 1967. Kiss Them For Me was also the name of a 20th Century Fox motion picture made in 1957, starring Mansfield and Cary Grant. It's a mid-tempo track with an uplifting melody and was influenced by Asian music, featuring South Asian instrumentation, which had become popular in the UK club scene due to the growth of Bangra. Tabla player Talvin Singh, future percussionist for Bjork on her 1993 debut album, took part in the sessions and also sang during the bridge. Singh would also go on to win a Mercury Music Award in 1999 for his debut album, OK, that fused techno and bangra. He would also go on to work with acts as diverse as Madonna, Duran Duran and Massive Attack. The beat was sampled from Schooly D's 1985 single, PSK, What Does It Mean? Melody Maker wrote a rave review, calling it sublime, but noting that some listeners would be horrified by its baggy backbeat and sheer unashamed danceability. It doesn't just groove, it floats almost imperceptibly to its ecstatic climax. Each sweet verse and saccharine chorus a tantalising hint of what's to come. And when it comes, by Christ, your knees give way. Kiss Them For Me was Susie and the Banshee's biggest hit in the United States. It became their second and last entry on the Billboard Hot 100 and their first single to hit the top 40, peaking at number 23 in the week of the 19th of October. It also became the band's second chart topper on the US Modern Rock Tracks chart, spending five weeks at number one during the summer of 1991. Kiss Them For Me was also the first Banshees song to hit the top 10 on the US Hot Dance Disco chart, peaking at number 8, and it spent several months on heavy rotation on MTV. In the UK it peaked at just number 32, the band's 16th top 40 single, as well as 29 in Ireland and 40 in Australia. The album was released on the 10th of June, where it reached number 29 in the UK and number 65 in the US. Superstition was well received by critics. Q gave it a four-star rating, saying, They pop it up with sweet string features on the single Kiss Them For Me, bear down on the maritime metaphor of Drifter with doomy foghorn and bells effects, and give it the all-but Twin Peaks dreamscape for softly. Melody Maker reviewer John Wilde described Superstition as a giant record about obsession, phobia, perspective and emotional tyranny. Wilde said the song Ghost In You was a furiously pretty six-note refrain that haunts long after the needle has returned to safety. In a four out of five review, Select praised the album, saying that Kiss Them For Me was a passionately laid-back single, exotic and funky, with an underlying hush of electro pulse beat, making it dance floor friendly. The rest of the album was also reviewed favourably. Drifter was compared to the soundtrack of a Sergio Leone film with a touch of ethereal sensuality, and Silver Waterfalls was qualified as gorgeous. 
The reviewer noted that the album ends with a delicate softly, with lyrics bare and tender enough to be almost like Scott Walker. Shadow Time, the second single from the album, was released on the 1st of July. It's an up-tempo, pop-oriented tune that received moderate airplay on alternative rock radio in the US in 1991. The song was remixed slightly for its single release, giving it a fuller, synthesised sound and adding some background vocals by Susie. Severin said that it was kind of a tribute to Roxy Music's For Your Pleasure. Shadow Time reached number 57 in the UK singles chart. In the US, it spent six weeks on the Modern Rock Tracks chart, peaking at number 13 for the week of the 12th of October. The band spent two months on the road in the US from July until August as second headliners of the first Lollapalooza tour. However, as has been the case with so many UK bands over the years, by the time they cracked America, they're too worn out to capitalise or even want that success. This was evident in the differing directions the founding members wanted to go in. Severin was getting more interested in electronic synth-led music, where Sue wanted to remain in the world of guitars. I think that, as with most territories, the main drawback is um, how, how your, the record company over there doesn't do things for you or does things for you. It's, um, I, I think now, um, just but through sheer persistence, a lot more people are aware of us. We've always had a very big audience in, say, uh, Los Angeles and New York, San Francisco, you know, the direct, uh, obviously it's the vast country means going to places where, you know, they probably don't even know, don't even know England exists, let alone who exists. And it's, um, it, it takes a lot of time, I think, a lot of hard work. And the, op the way to do that is, is, I mean, say with a band like you too, that, and, and many other groups before them, they actually have to take up residence in the country. And it's, uh, you know, six months, years, 18-month tours. And um, that's something that um, I, don't, I don't like to play in my life that much up front. And that's something that I haven't been able to um, do. It's like a, a torture to know what you're doing two years from now, where you're going to be. Um, so that's why it's been very slow from, from us to get, get to those little towns. But unless some people know what, what shows they're doing in two years' time. Um, I, I like to really um, live as it comes for the present, not in the past, not in the future, but for now. The single Fear of the Unknown was released in the US only on the 26th of November. It was the only Susie and the Banshees single not to be issued in the UK. The track in its original form was an up-tempo dance-oriented number with heavy percussion. For its release as a single, it was dramatically remixed by Junior Vasquez to accentuate its 4-4 rhythm and give it a house music feel. The single received moderate airplay on American alternative rock radio and peaked at number 12 on the Billboard magazine's Modern Rock Tracks chart. The song also became the Banshee's biggest hit on the US hot dance disco chart, climbing to number 6. The cover art is an homage to James Stewart's dream sequence in Alfred Hitchcock's film Vertigo. Lovely 
1992, Tim Burton asked the Banshees to compose the song Face to Face as the main single for his upcoming film Batman Returns. He said to Entertainment Weekly in 2004, I've always been a fan. Susie is one of very few women who can create a realistic primal cat sound. The recording sessions took place at Real World Studios in Bath, with the strings recorded in Los Angeles by Danny Elfman, who composed and supervised the film's score. Lyrically, the song makes indirect references to the film's characters Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle. The song can be heard on the end credits as well as in the film during a ballroom scene in which the pair dance together, not realising that, as their alter egos, Batman and Catwoman, they are enemies. Mr Wayne, a reminder, tonight is that loathsome party hosted by the odious Mr Shrek. May we RSVP in the resoundingly negative? Not interested. Although... Selena Kyle might be there. A kiss under the mistletoe. No. Mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it. A kiss can be even deadly. Does this mean we have to start fighting? Let's go outside. At the time of its release, the Stud Brothers wrote in Melody Maker, it's a slow, heavily orchestral and sensuously tense piece, with Susie first tapped, then cracked, then finally spiralling off into the ether. Face to Face peaked at number 21 in the UK singles chart and at number 23 in Sweden. It also performed well on American Alternative Rock Radio, where the single peaked at number 7 on the US Modern Rock Tracks chart. However, due to contractual problems, the song was only released in the US on cassette by Warner Brothers, which owned the copyright for the Batman Returns movie soundtrack. Consequently, Geffen, the band's US record company, was not allowed to release the song on any other format. Two versions of the music video were made where Susie is surrounded by cats, interspersed with shots from the movie, with Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. Burton initially wanted to direct the video, but had to cancel after Warner Brothers asked him to film a new sequence to change the end of the movie. Burton's assistant, Neil Abramson, stepped in and followed Burton's plan to match the video to the film. Between March and May 1993, at Studio Manoir in Lyon, France, the Banshees recorded new songs based on string arrangements, but had to abandon the sessions to play festivals abroad. On their return home at the beginning of 1994, they hired former Velvet Underground member John Cale to produce the rest of the record at Wessex Studios in London. The first single, Oh Baby, was released on the 28th of December 1994. The song is much different musically and lyrically than almost all of Susie and the Banshee's previous releases. It's an up-tempo love song with a skipping rhythm, light guitar work and straightforward cheerful lyrics. 
Oh Baby was the last Susie and the Banshees single to hit the top 40, peaking at number 34 in the UK singles chart. It was also their last entry on the US Modern Rock Tracks chart, where it reached number 21. Crossing over from the alternative camp to daytime radio airplay, the song became a surprise hit on European radio and topped the Polish music chart for three weeks. The album, The Rapture, was released on the 16th of January 1995 and was well received by critics. Melody Maker wrote, The Rapture is a fascinating transcontinental journey through danger and exotica. Describing the arrangements, they added, it's a vivid cornucopia of lush instrumentation, mandolins vying with cellos and bells, sweeping strings describing starlit oceans and sirens calling from jagged rocks and attics that hide secret worlds. Steve Marlins of Vox also liked the album. The title track is a sublime melodrama, recalling the experimentation of Peep Show and 1982's Kiss in the Dreamhouse. He concluded with, The Rapture represents an intelligent twist on familiar Banshee's obsessions. Liz Buckley of Sun Zoom Spark also praised its writing. How is a band that first formed almost two decades ago able to remain both vital and celebrated? Answer, metamorphosis. Select gave it a four-star rating, hailing the band as purveyors of scary pop par excellence. Matt Hall noted the ability of the group for trotting out jolly tunes about mental breakdown, love bordering on obsession, and severely dislocated relationships. The reviewer, Matt Hall, characterised the rapture as a fine little Russian doll of a record, and said, Under the keyboard lines, swelling strings and OTT percussion, at the centre of every song is a nugget of disquiet that keeps you listening again and again. On the 6th of February, the single Stargazer was released, an up-tempo, guitar-driven pop tune. It was slightly remixed by Mark Saunders for its single release, bringing the bass further forward in the mix. Lyrically, the song casts Susie as a dreamer, who looks up at the stars and wishes for a better life, and to escape this straitjacket of constraint. Stargazer did not chart in the US and only peaked at number 64 in the UK. To date, it is the final single released by the band, because a few weeks after its release, Polydor dropped Susie and the Banshees due to declining sales, and Klein was replaced on the band's 1995 tour by ex-psychedelic furs guitarist Knox Chandler. In April 1996, the Banshees disbanded after 20 years. The last album was The Rapture, and there was a lot of, it was like, that was hard work, getting the thing organised. And I think that's kind of, to me, was, the, it was I suppose, the, certainly the, the first um, warning sign, if you like, you know, that, that this, is, this is not working the, same, the way it used to be. We were always going to be either, you know, one of the punk survivors, which is a horrible term. Goth veterans, you know. They're all really derogatory terms. I just felt everybody was wearing blinkers and I was sick of it and I just said, right, well, that's it.
leave a message or leave me alone. McCarrick, who had played with a number of musical groups through the mid-90s, became a full-time member of Therapy after the Banshees disbanded, and continued to do session work with numerous artists over the years, including Skunk and Nancy, Ocean Size, Biffy Clyro and Gary Newman. Severin has since relocated to Edinburgh and has gone on to release 14 solo instrumental albums including film soundtracks and 5 EPs, the most recent of which was 2019's 23 Wounds of Julius Caesar. He still sometimes performs live, playing music alongside screenings of silent movies. Susie and Budgie directed all their energy into the creatures for which they'd already been writing material. At the same time, the long out-of-print Wild Things EP and Feast album were remastered and re-released in 1997 as the compilation A Bestiary Of, which included a couple of B-sides as well. We then kind of were trying to get ourselves a deal, you know, because we parted companies with Polydor and by that point Geffen. Um, um, it was whilst, during the process, of we, we kind of relocated to England and thought, you know, it'd just be a matter of, here's our new album, it's brilliant, you want it. And um, the reaction was good, but nobody, nobody did. After being turned down by various major record labels for being too avant-garde and not commercial enough, Susie and Budgie decided to fund their next album themselves. They scraped together some money, purchased some equipment and began working on the record at their house near Toulouse. We, we basically brought in equipment and made a space to work that was kind of away from the restrictions or the influence of um, time constrictions or um, anything that was going on in the outside world really. The original title of the album was Gift Horse, then Mount Venus, before the duo decided on Anima Animus, which was a reference to Jung's theory of the man inside the woman and the woman inside the man. They began producing the album with the assistance of Steve Lyon, Steve Levine and Warren Livesey. Four songs, Second Floor, Another Planet, Say and I Was Me, were recorded in London, and while there they met Doug Hart, who owned independent label Hydrogen Records. With his help, the Creatures set up their own label called Sue Records and became an independent act. It was just like, you know, the, the whole industry, you know, has changed, has changed a lot. And, um, you know, we have no interest in, in the way that they want to market uh, so, so intensely uh, and how nothing's allowed to kind of find its own strength. You know, or, or, or develop. You know, I think um, it's it's um, artistically it's it's a, it's a cul-de-sac, and I think we're glad we're out of it. You know, so I, independence, if you like, was the only way we could go because nobody was nobody would, was prepared to take, you know, something they thought had already had its probably you know its best day, and we knew that we hadn't. You know, we're just about starting. 
We just got fed up with uh, waiting for the record companies to wake up and uh, we decided to set up our own label after we'd uh, written, recorded the album under our own steam, mixed it in New York um, and here we are. In February 1998, John Cale organised the With a Little Help From My Friends Festival at the Paradiso in Amsterdam and contacted the Creatures for a collaboration. The concert, shown on Dutch national television, featured the song Murdering Mouth. Composed for the event and sung in duet with Cale, it would end up on Anima Animus. That night, the Creatures also premiered a live orchestra version of I Was Me with Cale on viola. In May, The Creatures appeared on the British TV show Later with Jules Holland with two extra musicians to perform Disconnected and Prettiest Thing. A standalone single, Sad Cunt, was offered to attendees of two warm-up concerts in London in May prior to the North American tour. From June to August, the pair toured the USA as a double bill with Kale, playing unreleased material. Susie and Kale also sang several songs together each night. An EP, Eraser Cut, an anagram of Creatures, was then released in July including four songs that had been written for the full album which the pair were working on but felt they needed to release. Time Out described the songs on the EP as short, sharp, percussive and infectiously atmospheric. Shortly after the release of Eraser Cut, the first single from the full-length album, Second Floor, was released on the 5th of October 1998. It was accompanied by a video shot in black and white. Writing in Diva, Lucy O'Brien described Second Floor as a driving, thumping dance floor thing that exudes a brooding glamour. Susie said that the song was about the state a person was in after having too many vodka gimlets. It's when you still want more, when you want the party to continue and it's beyond sensible. I remember times when I was the one person left in a place, and the euphoria that goes along with it. Second floor was my idea of what a private drinking bar would be, that was open all the time. She also said that there's something very religious about bars, they're like altars, the lighting, the colour of the bottles, having a drink, it's like Santa's grotto. The album Anima Animus was finally released on the 15th of February 1999 and was well received by critics. It's a, it's a strange album because it means that we, some of the first ideas came almost in the last Banshee soundcheck and some of the last ideas you know, were almost a year, maybe over a year later and so it's, it's a kind of a long transition in a way but we kind of, at the end of the day, we took ten songs and said, this is what makes up the album, this represents best for us, what's been going on in the two and a half years. The Times gave it eight out of ten and wrote, Susie has rarely been in better voice. The opening track, Second Floor, is a fantastically knowing melodrama, riding a techno pulse, while the ominous, epic, exterminating angel pursues its prey in lamplit streets. It's entrancing, hypnotic and inventive. 
The Sunday Times also praised it in these glowing terms. Susie's voice has lost none of its ability to seduce and unsettle. The sound is percussive, defined by Budgie's supple rhythm work. Exterminating Angel is exquisitely menacing, while the sinuous Another Planet grows to a shuddering climax. Uncut reviewer Chris Roberts gave the album 4 out of 5, saying, Sue's always been at her best as a harsh declaimer, but there are phases where she whispers, breathes, reaches for vulnerability. The creatures have jettisoned comfort and are phoning home from a new end zone. Anima Animus crackles. The second single, Say, was released on the 15th of March. It's about Susie's friend Billy McKenzie of the post-punk band Associates, who took his life in 1997. It includes lyrics revealing that they were going to meet just before his death. The song reached number 72 on the UK singles chart. On the 30th of August, a third single was released. Uncut's Chris Roberts described Prettiest Thing as a malevolent mini-movie. The live album Zulu, recorded in London in 1998, was released later in 1999, and Sequins in the Sun, recorded at Glastonbury 99, was released in 2000, on limited edition via the Creatures website. Make the heart grow fonder, don't make it separate. In 2002, Universal started releasing Susie and the Banshees' remastered back catalogue, starting with the best of Susie and the Banshees. That April, Susie, Severin, Budgie and Chandler reunited for the Seven Year Itch tour, which was released as the Seven Year Itch live album and DVD in 2003. When we first decided to do this itchy and scratchy tour, I said, so long as we do something we've all never done before. <laughs> and we had to think. There's a fog upon LA. Reforming only showed how deep the enmity was now between Severin and Sue. The pair barely communicated the whole time. It was so disappointing that bridges that should have been mended with the Seven Year Itch tour never were. I suppose I kind of thought in the back of my mind, it would be great if we wanted to get back together again and do a new album. But there seems to be this unspoken resentment, Susie said. She now thinks it will never happen. The pair have rarely spoken over the intervening years. We have go-betweens. Sad, isn't it? After the final concert of the Seven Year Itch tour in Tokyo, Susie and Budgie stayed there to begin recording the Creatures' fourth album, High. Budgie had met Japanese keyboardist and producer Hoppy Kamiyama while playing in Chicago on the Seven Year Itch tour. Kamiyama was known for his work with Leonard Ito, who had been in the world-renowned traditional Japanese drumming troupe, the Kodo Drummers. Budgie and Susie had wanted to collaborate with Ito for a long time, but had never contacted him. 
After an exchange of emails with Ito, the creatures booked a studio in Tokyo and invited him to join them for a session on the 19th of August 2002. A spontaneous drum duet between Budgie and Ito formed the basis of the album, and the drums for High were recorded in less than 24 hours after that final Banshees gig. During the recording, Susie took notes and stockpiled ideas for the songs. In the days that followed that session, the duo visited the Rapongi district, the Shinto shrines and Lake Ashi, and shot images with a DV camera, the footage on which would later appear in a documentary included as a DVD in a limited edition of the album. Back home in France, 11 tracks were edited from the initial 90-minute tape. Susie and Budgie then developed the songs over a period of several months. During this time, Budgie learned sound engineering and recorded the album. Susie approached High like a vinyl release, with an A side and a B side, noting that this method was so we could have an extroverted side and an introverted and calmer one. The album was preceded by the single Godzilla, which was described as spookily brilliant by NME and reached number 53 in the UK singles chart. Reviews were also favourable for High. Mojo praised the album in a four-star review. High boasts more than a few moments of jasmine-scented intimacy, where Sue's inimitable banshee yelp does daintily nuanced dances to Budgie's intricate marimba manipulations, a robust return. Time Out considered it as a spine-tingling achievement. Reviewer Peter Watts described it as mesmeric, saying Susie's voice is the dominant instrument here, snaking and curling around the bouncing, drumming backdrop. Elegiac and inhuman, as she chants, purrs and whispers her way around the album. The Independent wrote that High was an album of dense atmospherics, frenetic rhythms and, of course, Susie's visceral wailing. The writer, Fiona Sturgis, qualified it as imaginative, raw and energetic, and Uncut praised it for its fearsome drumming. Simon Price wrote, It's as dense as its predecessors, built from layer upon layer of xylophones, bells and steel pipes from Budgie and Tycho drummer Lenadito. Imagine the marching band from Fleetwood Mac's Tusk let loose on the marching powder in which the Mac themselves have been indulging, while Sue coos like a 1940s siren over the top, and you're some way to imagining this Anglo-Japanese beauty. In 2004, Susie was asked to be the guest vocalist and lyricist on Basement Jax's track, Kish Cash. It was included on their album of the same name, except spelt with K's instead of C's, which won Best Dance and Electronic Album at the 47th Grammy Awards. That same year, she toured as a solo act, performing Banshees and Creatures songs, although Budgie did play drums for her and acted as her musical arranger. A live DVD called Dream Show documented the last performance of this tour in London in September 2004, performed with the 16-piece orchestra The Millennium Ensemble. Released in 2005, this DVD reached number one in the UK Music DVD chart. Dream Show was the last release by the pair, as Susie announced during a 2007 interview with the Sunday Times that she and Budgie had divorced. In another interview with The Independent, she added, I've never particularly said I'm hetero or I'm a lesbian. I know there are people who are definitely one way, but not really me. 
I suppose if I'm attracted to men, then they usually have more feminine qualities. After the success of Dream Show, Susie received demos from several composers. Universal soon offered her a new record deal on the label W14, which was about to be created by John Williams, who had previously worked with her on Peep Show and Boomerang. Commenting on her website in July 2006, Susie stated, at least I didn't have to get someone spray painting my name on the front of the Universal building. The album was co-produced by Steve Evans, who had previously worked with Robert Plant, and Charlie Jones, who had collaborated with Plant as well as with Goldfrapp. The drums were performed by Clive Deemer, who had previously played with both Plant and Portishead. Evans and Jones composed the music for the tracks About to Happen, If It Doesn't Kill You, Sea of Tranquility, They Follow You, and Heaven and Alchemy. It was the first time that Susie had worked with producers who also physically played on the record, which she said made a huge difference. Um, I mean, I come from work, working as part of a band, so I guess it's, it's something that I always felt, well, that's the only way to do it. Um, um, for this, I, I think probably the idea of going under the name of Susie and doing something solo probably happened around the time that I did the festival hall shows in end of 2004, and we had this amazing orchestra. Um, and it was so fantastic working live with an orchestra and getting the, the two-way connection and with people that I've never worked with before. So that kind of... You know, finally the DVD came out a year later of the show. Um, it went in at number one, which was fantastic. Um, and then it was just, uh, basically I decided I just wanted to work with nobody else that I'd worked with before. It's, it's actually been felt easier because um, it's like starting again. I think when you're working with new people and there's no baggage or uh, expectation, your senses are more heightened and you're just a lot more focused and aware. I think possibly when, you know, it's great having people that you work with, but um, something to rely on, but sometimes that can dull your senses a bit after it's good to have a some, long time. Something abstract thrown in there, don't yeah, you? Yeah, well, well I, th I think the band, the Banshees last long because they kept losing guitarists, <laughs> so it, they, they kind of had to kind of um, slightly alter things and readapt. Instead of recording the album in one block session, she commuted from France to the studio in England. She made several trips from the end of 2006 to May 2007, concentrating on two or three tracks at a time. This working method provided a useful overview, as she stated, Sometimes when you're so involved in a project day in and day out, you can lose sight of the goal or the object. It puts a different discipline to it. She used technology as a tool, listening to the recordings of the music at home. Susie's only instruction to her two composers was to treat every song as a potential single. The album, Manta Ray, includes a variety of musical styles, including pop, glam and cabaret. If It Doesn't Kill You contains some of the oldest lyrics Susie had penned for the album, and her original vision for the music was different before she first met Jones. She was drawn to the title, and in Susie's words, he made it one of those classic songs that could be associated with James Bond. It's quite cinematic. It will shake you if it doesn't break you. It will make you.
Sea of Tranquility existed as a lyric on its own and was her idea of writing a sci-fi murder mystery. Jones and Evans gave it a bossa nova vibe, taking it somewhere completely different. The title of the album comes from a lyric from Sea of Tranquility. A manta ray is described as a ghost of a roar from the sea floor in the song. In an interview for The Telegraph, she further explained, Because the sounds on the album are so diverse, we needed an abstract title. Rays symbolise something from deep space and a long, long time ago. The deep ocean also inspired Stingray, the 1964 TV series, and science fiction, which takes us onto space, those wings. Deep ocean and space are almost reversible worlds. The album was preceded by its first single, Into a Swan, released one week earlier on the 3rd of September 2007. It was one of the first songs written after the end of her marriage. Egyptian percussionist Hossam Ramsey, who had previously worked with Robert Plant on No Quarter, took part in the recording sessions. The song was seen as a statement of identity and transformation by critics. Susie saw it as recognising that feeling that I suppose gets you from adolescence where you get your first feeling of confidence of stepping out on your own. And I think it is just getting that confidence to move forward and continue. It's a motivation. The music video featuring Susie transforming into a black swan leaked to the internet via YouTube in June 2007. It was later available to stream on Susie's official website. Great fun making that video um, with new video directors, um, Harvey and Caroline. Um, it, was, it was a one-day shoot, crammed it all in. And you were watching it really, really closely because you, you didn't get a huge close-up look at it all while the work was going through. No, well, I, I saw the offline and um, there was a few adjustments to be made and by then I was back in France, so it was sent to me on the computer and I literally saw the whole video about the size of a postage stamp. <laughs> so, okay, I think that's about right. We'll play it again so for you later, <laughs> actually, on the big screens. It's great to see it big. Upon release, Into a Swan hit number 59 in the UK singles chart. Manta Ray was released on the 10th of September to critical acclaim. A US release followed on the 2nd of October on Decca Records. It charted at number 39 in the UK and number 132 in her adopted France. Concerning the quality of the songs, journalist Charlotte Heathcote noted, Impressively, there's not a letdown track on the album, and a perfectionist attention to detail sees synths, strings, wind and percussion used to creative, compelling effect. Mojo also hailed the songs and the arrangements, saying that a thirst for sonic adventure radiates from each track, Simon Price in The Independent shared the same point of view, stating that Manta Ray is a bracing and beautiful blast of ice. In a review rated four stars out of five, The Times observed that her steely-toned voice is as beguiling as ever. Similarly, The Telegraph critic Andrew Perry noted she sounds imperious, passionate. Q's Gary Mulholland published a positive review, saying, Susie's voice is as rich and sensual as ever, and lyrical references to rebirth abound. Uncut wrote, fortunately, she's still the uncompromising outsider at heart. Slant magazine qualified Manta Ray's sound as distinctly modern, stating that it's Susie's voice, trembling and echoing all at once, that reaffirms the album's urgency. Two more singles were released from the album. Here Comes That Day was released on the 29th of October. 
The song has been described by music critics as pop noir, a Shirley Bassey strut, a brass festoon swagger, a moody and sultry jazz-tinged number, and a brassy withering put-down of some unfortunate snivelling weasel whose duplicity is exposed in no short order. The Guardian rated it as one of the singles of the week, describing it as 60s pop replete with severe and sexy vocals. It aches with a lifetime of insight and colour, yet still manages to sound refreshing and original. Manchester Evening News wrote that it was the best James Bond theme that never was, brassy and theatrical, save for a lame fading. It strongly recalls and indeed surpasses classic Shirley Bassey. Here Comes That Day was named Single of the Week on BBC Radio 2 as well on the 15th of September, and due to its popularity, the track entered the UK singles chart prior to the official release date, peaking at number 93, but it failed to remain in the top 100 following the full release of the single, falling to 103. About to Happen, the third and final single from the album, was released on the 10th of March 2008 and peaked at number 154 in the UK. Later that year, Susie performed vocals for the track Careless Love, which was written by composer Angelo Badalamenti for the soundtrack to the John Mabry-directed film The Edge of Love. She performed another Badalamenti number, Who Will Take My Dreams Away, at the annual edition of the World Soundtrack Awards at the Capitol Concert Hall in Ghent, Belgium. Playing with fire with you with life Only good men dying young Soldiers and sailors and planes up above All careless talking, careless love After a year of touring, the last show of Susie's solo tour happened in London in September 2008. A live DVD of this performance, Finale, The Last Manta Ray and More show, was released in 2009. Hello, I'm Paul Stokes. We're backstage at the 2011 Q Awards. I've just been joined by Susie Sue, who's won the Outstanding Contribution to Music Award. Congratulations. Thank you very much. How does it feel to sort of look back on your career slightly as these sort of awards encourage us to do, I suppose? Well, I suppose it's pretty scary just going back that far. But, um, yeah, and I've been, I have been away for quite a while. Um, I was touring up until the end of 2008. And um, so I've had some time off. And I know my fans are probably think because I don't Twitter or anything like that. So... Um, I've only come here to tell them, you know, don't worry, I'm okay and I'm working on new material. So there's plenty more to come? Yeah, I ain't done yet. That's the thing, contribution to music. I've not finished yet. After a hiatus, Susie played two nights at the Royal Festival Hall in London during Yoko Ono's Meltdown Festival in June 2013. She performed the Banshee's Kaleidoscope album in its entirety, along with other works from her back catalogue. She also appeared at Ono's Double Fantasy concert to sing the final song, Walking on Thin Ice. Love Crime, her first song in eight years, was featured in the finale of the TV series Hannibal, broadcast in August 2015. Series creator Brian Fuller, who had contacted her in November 2014, described the song, composed by Susie with Brian Reitzel, as epic. 
On recording the song, Susie has stated in an interview on withguitars.com, Since those wonderful shows at the Royal Festival Hall in 2013, it's been a frustrating stop-start to feed my soul and make new music. Then along came a tasty morsel from Brian Retzel, working on the soundtrack for the final Hannibal series. I was already a huge fan, and before I knew it, I was taking a nibble out of Hannibal and getting stuck in. Thank you, Hannibal. At long last, my appetite is back again. The song was made available for digital download on the 4th of December 2015, entitled Love Crime, a moose-bouche version. Since then, however, Susie Sue has yet to release any more material. Nineteen seventy-six, the year of her arrival on the punk scene, was a year chock full of furious figures, but none were quite like the eighteen-year-old Susan Ballion. The Pistols may have been punk's ground zero, but the most overlooked thing about Susie is that she arrived quite independently and astonishingly fully formed into that maelstrom year. Before anyone even uttered the words punk rock in 1975, she was already strutting off on the bus to the Roxy, dressed outrageously in rented costumes and drawing threatening stares. She was one of that small handful who'd been waiting for this to happen and who became one of punk's crucial catalysts. I think the punk attitude was a fantastic attitude. Before it got manipulated by the media and distorted and that small period of time before um, Bill Grundy and uh, the Filth and the Fury and, and it went cartoon-like. Um, it was very empowering, very exciting, and it had nothing to do with the music industry. And it was all about DIY, not waiting for somebody to help you out. It was like, help yourselves. And it was a very powerful time for women as well. Uh, it was the first time girls were picking up instruments and not just being fey little, you know, female singers, you know, with um, little puppet strings held by a man in the background. She was at the epicentre of the scene, the so-called Bromley contingent, who discovered the Sex Pistols first, and who added that fan-based glamour that the band needed. She was the only one who arrived topless at their shows, shocking even the Pistols' entourage. She was the one whose snarky tongue sparked the famous Bill Grundy incident on national TV, sparking the brouhaha which ended in Steve Jones calling Grundy a dirty fucker creating the moment which thrust the pistols into the national consciousness. But arguably, Susie's influence runs much deeper than punk. It was her band that provided the catalyst for Robert Smith's reinvention of The Cure. When in the early 1980s the goth scene arrived, Susie was clearly at the very least its fairy godmother. However, despite their prolific output in the 20 years they were together, the Banshees never quite fit the mainstream. Their modal melodies and spacious textures may have passed a baton to generation of bands like U2, and their lush, darkly expressionistic lyrics may have laid the groundwork for goth, but the Banshees' work never sat happily alongside that of their back-to-basic punk contemporaries. The Banshees have always remained more influential than successful. Even today you don't hear their music as much as you do The Clash, The Sex Pistols or The Cure. But in a way that feels exactly how it should be. Susie Sue, The Banshees, The Creatures, 
All of them are like black diamonds in the rough, waiting to be discovered by the right people, looking in the right place, at the right time in their lives. Join hands with me and give thanks for Susie and the Banshees. for listening to this episode of Band Biographies. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for Band Biographies or by emailing bandbiographies at gmail.com. See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.